One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Connecting to the big show. In three, two, one. I just think it's an enticement. It's not rocket science. It can be done. I truly believe it can. It's wanton destruction. It's also illegal. We're the one for Cork and ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The lines are live. Let's kickstart the conversation. This is The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. This day next week, we'll be into it, in the thick of it. The Cork's 96 FM Giving for Living Radiothon. More for you during the morning if you uh, want to find out how to get involved. Someone messaged me yesterday and said, how do I organize a no uniform day? Just go on the website and it is all there. www.96fm.ie Cutting the grass the other day. You're going to love this. I was cutting the grass the other day and I, I have a habit. I don't like... I don't like the way grass gets gets under your nails. You know that, you know, you get to be forever trying to get it out. You know that, you now grass, so I wear, right? I, I wear rubber gloves when I'm cutting the grass. You know the ones, we all wear them for everything now. Cheap rubber gloves that you get in the chemist. I wear them for the grass. Just And so a neighbour of mine walked past me, we were just saluting each other. He says, geez, look at you, aren't you posh? Look at the posh fella, and, and he wearing rubber gloves, cutting the grass. And then I read this survey about what makes you posh. Now, wearing rubber gloves when you cut the grass isn't done it, right? I do, though. I, I have done, for, I wear rubber gloves when I'm painting. I'm not allowed to paint much, but you know what I mean. Uh, if I'm doing it with the car, I wear, I hate getting muck and dirt and filth and grass and grease on my hands. Does that make me posh? I don't know. There's a whole list of things out that do have some fun with that uh, during the course of the morning. We're going to talk more about that new waste disposal story or recycling story uh, up the north side into a place where already on board Planola has said there's too much of that kind of industry up there. We've now got a permit given for another one. People are not particularly happy about it. Look, the permit has been granted and such it is what it is, but People not particularly happy about it. We'll get to that. But I want to go back to something that uh, we were talking to or talking about yesterday. Fiona was outside uh, CUH with members of the Ames group uh, asking for restrictions to be lifted. Now, 
The Minister for Health has said the restrictions should be lifted. The Taoiseach has said the restrictions should be lifted. The Chief Medical Officer has said, and if I'm misquoting him, someone will pick me up on it, but my understanding is that Tony Houlihan has now said that there is no public health reason why partners should be excluded. He put the little caveat on the end of it that it's up to each individual hospital to make its own decision. So he gives them the the out clause, as it were. But when the minister is saying there's no need for it, when the Taoiseach is saying it shouldn't be happening, when the chief medical officer says he can't find a public health reason for it, you would wonder why it is still going on in some hospitals, including out at CUH. We touched base briefly with Fiona yesterday while she was outside the hospital. And later, she sent us uh, just a little package, just talking to some of the people who were there for that protest. Caroline Daly. So, Caroline, just tell me about your own experience. You had a baby here four weeks ago. I did, yeah. Um, my daughter was born here um, four weeks ago um, by C-section, so my husband was able to be present for the delivery and for an hour after, but he didn't see her again then until he picked us up three days later. You know, which is obviously was really disappointing. And, you know, from our perspective, I think it's the absence of any explanation of the basis for the restrictions is what we find so frustrating. You know, like I'm a reasonable person. Um, and I think if there's an explanation or a basis for why the restrictions are justified, let's have it and let's see it. You know, like we're intelligent people. We can understand that. And obviously everyone wants to be protected from COVID. But, you know, the absence of that information is really frustrating. I think the silence is deafening, to be perfectly honest. Um, and and look, we've had the CMO come out. We've had Nihal Martin come out. They're all saying there's no justifiable basis from a public health perspective as to why this should continue. And yet it continues, you know. Did you have to go to your scans throughout your pregnancy alone? Yeah, entirely alone. Um, and again, you know, at no point when I had those scans was my temperature even taken. So, like, you know, I, I can't understand how, if we're talking about risk mitigation here, how, you know, my husband who lives with me, you know, we're cohabiting, how is the risk anyway mitigated by excluding him when, when I'm not even tested for a temperature check before I go in for those scans? And after you had your baby and you were here on your own for the three days, what was the worst thing about not having your partner here? Um, the most difficult thing was, you know, we, we were trying to, like I was trying to breastfeed my daughter. Um, and I think it's it's the lack of support for all of those things. Like you're, you know, you're physically trying to do that. Um, but at the same time, you need to try to take care of yourself. Like, you know, I had a C-section, so I had major abdominal surgery and I was trying to take care of a newborn you know, on my own. And the midwives are excellent, you know, and I'm sure this has been reiterated time and time again. You know, I can't fault the quality of the care I received and and I would commend them highly for that, for the work they're doing in difficult circumstances. But really the knock-on impact of this and the fact that partners aren't able to be there to support these women giving birth is the fact, like, the midwives then have to carry all that slack. You know, when we had International, you know, Day of the Midwife there the other week and people are celebrating the great work that these, these midwives do and yet, you know, we're not helping them. You know, if we would allow a support person in, like, you know, the testing is there, there's capacity in the system to be able to test partners. You know, if they are clear of COVID, let them come in and let them share some of that burden, first of all, and support the women who so, who so desperately need it. And in, in both good circumstances and bad, I think it's important to highlight that. You know, there's an awful lot of women have had to bear their souls here and lay forth their own tragedy just in an effort to get themselves heard and and that's not right and at the other 
end of the spectrum, you know, most people have one, two, three babies. Like, this is not something that happens every week for people. It's a once, twice, thrice in a lifetime event. And if everything goes well, and as we hope it should, to exclude partners from that experience with no justifiable basis is wrong. What was it like for your partner not being able to be here for you and the newborn baby and having that bonding time with the baby and being able to support you? Um, it was really difficult for him. Um, he he found it really frustrating and I think he found it upsetting. You know, obviously we had a really straightforward birth, thankfully. But, you know, in the days that follow, you know, if you're trying to get breastfeeding established, if you're trying to take care of yourselves, like there are highs and lows. And, and he's just at the end of the phone, you know, trying to support me in that regard and not able to physically be there, not able to take the baby to give me a break, to have a rest. Like I had four and a half hours sleep in three days that I was there. Again, like if we're talking about risk, you know, is that the most sensible thing, you know, for the baby or for me? I'm not sure that it is. Um, and, I, and I certainly think as well, you know, anecdotally, what I've heard is that women aren't staying in hospital as long as maybe, you know, the medics would like them to, to ensure recovery after birth. They're so anxious to get out of there and get home to their support network that, it get, you know, they're, they're leaving hospital as soon as they, they absolutely can. So again, if we're taking a risk-based approach to this, what's the greater risk at this point? Jessica McKinnon. So Jessica, just tell me, you're here today. Why are you here in support of this protest? Well, it's really, I think, uh, barbaric what the women are having to endure here by themselves. Um, For us, we had a home birth, but I was transferred here and we were three days in, in ICU. And it was just the hardest thing to do that by yourself. And I just, I don't know how it can be expected of you to do that by yourself after you've just given birth, you're blurry, you're bleeding, your hormones are a mess. You have to take in all kinds of very detailed medical information, make decisions, and you're just expected to do that with no help whatsoever. And it's just, it's just unfair. And especially now people are going for haircuts and, you know, going to a restaurant soon and things like that. And and these women are still having to be treated like this. And what was it like for your partner? Because he missed out then on those bonding days. Exactly. So he was sitting outside here on the bench, sitting in the parking lot and having no idea what was going on. And I couldn't even keep him informed because they're not allowing phones in the NICU. So I couldn't make the phone calls if I wanted to be with my baby. And of course, being with my baby was my first priority. So my husband was completely in the dark and I would have to leave, make a phone call, give him an update, run back in. Hardly had time to feed myself, sleep because I was trying to manage all of this, including keeping him up to date. So yeah, he was completely in the dark, really worried about us all the time and didn't know what to do. He was, he was helpless. Some of the people that Fiona met outside CUH yesterday, a very small group, and she met a number of them. They were socially distanced and all that outside of the hospital, part of the group called AIMS. And again, I don't think there's been any statement from the hospital or from the HSE with regard to why the restrictions are still in place when the Taoiseach said in the doll he didn't think that it was right when the Minister for Health is asking why it's still going on and when, and far more important than either of the two of those, with all due respect to them, the Chief Medical Officer has now said that he doesn't see any public health reason to keep these restrictions in place. Obviously, he has left it to each of the 19 maternity hospitals in the country to make their own final decision, but he did say there's no 
logical reason at this stage, or no public health reason, to keep those restrictions in place. But as we speak at 17 minutes past nine, they are still in place at CUMH. Talking to one or two more people affected next. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With Dairymaid Premium Spread, 100% natural and made in Cork using West Cork Cream. Is Navin in Cavan? No, Demi, they just rhyme. Navin is in Mead. Cavan is a county. So what is the city in Navin? Are you being serious right now? It's a town, it's not a city. Wait, hold on. Who was your geography teacher? I didn't do Again. geography. <laughs> that explains everything. <laughs> so good. Lorraine and Demi. Lorraine and Demi. Live. If you want to hear me trying to figure out what's going on in Demi's brain, Saturdays. Tune in to us to see what else Demi figures out. Lorraine and Demi. Live. Saturdays, 2 to 6 p.m. With Popsicle, Castle Street, Winthrop Street and the English Market, Cork City. The home of mouth-watering, ice-cool, handcrafted gourmet popsicles. See popsicle.ie. Cork's 96 FM. I stay with this for a while because it's a very serious topic of conversation, but someone just was on saying I'm a snob, apparently. A snob because I wear gloves cut in the grass. We'll discuss that more as we go through. But but first of all, uh, Rianucht, good morning to you. You 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 had a most unfortunate experience last year. Good morning to you. Good morning, PJ. How are you doing? Good, good. You had two miscarriages. Yes, we we did. Like you know, like a lot of couples really in, in CMH. And um, I think there was probably plenty in the same situation. Unfortunately, so um, we have a two-year-old at home. So we're very blessed to have Jane. She's two and a half. And I think we just had a really textbook pregnancy. Everything went really well. Had a really good labor. Um, But I had, you know, my husband, my partner, every step of the way. I know it's very much a physical journey, but it's an emotional journey as well. And I suppose the dads can go through it physically, but they can go through it emotionally. Um, So, you know, um, we had... We were in private at the time, so you know what you get your eight week scan, your maybe ten week scan, twelve weeks, and all that. So yeah, fast forward um, this year, um, twenty twenty, and we had the eight week scan. Everything was perfect, you know, um, good heartbeat. So I thought statistically, your your chances are like four percent of miscarriage, and we got to eleven weeks, and I had a bleed at home, and it stopped, and. You know, it, it kind of progressed again the next day, and I can I knew myself, you know, that I had to go in. Yeah. Spoke with them, you know, they would have said, yeah, look, your partner can come in. So we just kind of made a plan that he'd stay with our daughter, and my friend would drop me to the door. Um, so it kind of progressed quite fast uh, that I was bleeding um, through towels and stuff. I was actually just clotting now, kind of hemorrhaging. Yeah. It was something Very I. Very distressing, I I'd say. I wasn't aware, I suppose, that a miscarriage, you know, at 11 weeks can be, you know, so kind of kind of violent and aggressive in that sense. So, you know, I had to stay overnight um, and, you know, Derek collected me the next morning. I declined the surgical because we'd lost the baby and, you know, I didn't see the need um, to, to have a DNC yeah. at the time. So we got pregnant again and um, we had the eight-week scan and, and it was it was good, um, good heartbeat again. And I suppose we went for the, just the reassurance, a 10-week um, with my consultant again. 
and there wasn't a heartbeat this time. Mm. Um, and I suppose, you know, I, I didn't expect us to have that bad luck again, really. So, you know, you're kind of just sitting there and you're trying to take all the information in and, you know, as beautiful as the man Dan McKinnon is, you know, he's not your partner. Um, you know, and it's very awkward for them and they're trying to console you. Um, so you had to walk out um, up there and trying to kind of remember all the things about going to the hospital, the DNC, the general anaesthetic mightn't be an option yet. And um, just had to walk out to the car. And so you had to take that whole conversation in on your own. Yeah. 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 And I had to kind of keep it together. So, so your partner's you know? not even allowed to meet the doctor with you? Not at that stage, no. Um, so, you know, I was told to, to go to the CUMH um, this following Tuesday, so this would have been the Friday. So I didn't get a, an appointment on the Monday in the Ashland Suite. Um, I had to wait until the Tuesday. So, um, and, and think about the previous bleed I had with my last miscarriage. I was thinking, am I going to start bleeding again? You know, all these kind of things, you know, go through your head. Um, I didn't want to lose the pregnancy because I wanted to to make sure I had, you know, genetic testing this time. Yes. To get some answers. Yes. So um, we had the procedure um, done on the Thursday. But on Tuesday, I had to have the scan again just to confirm before the surgical procedure. And I had to go in on my own. And we had to rule out that there wasn't a twin um, on my own. Um, and I thought, you know, I can cope with, with one, but two. I just thought this is just barbaric for like for no support at all in this so as soon as the scam is over it's like the tokenism tick the box yeah your partner can come up now and meet the gynecologist and I, I just you know you put behind the blue curtain mm. in the Ashland Street would, would you be asking the question uh, Renick at this stage well okay he can come in now like why couldn't he be here 20 minutes ago when I'm trying to take all this terrible information oh, on board yeah. I suppose you're kind of in shock and you're, you're very upset and you're ushered out the door really fast and like I suppose I, I put to CUMH afterwards, you know, it's like, it's the tokenism, it's where's the opportunity for the father to have any closure or to give you a sense of support or just there's a massive disconnect and yeah. especially for the fathers that it's their first time you know, um, and like, you know, I've been lucky to have a baby before Um so I think that's pretty immoral and unjust and it's really abusive on both parties really, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So um I suppose the general anesthetic had just come back. And I think PJ for me like all summer I kinda of sat on that and I didn't think, expect to have another miscarriage, but it took seven months for the hospital to implement the general anesthetic again. I think from March until November, there was DNCs that were under 12 weeks done under spinal epidural, yeah. and there wasn't an option for women. I think that's pretty immoral. Like, that's something I feel very... So, sorry, about. I'm losing the, the, the run here as well, but so you you had to have the DNC where you offered it a general, like you'd have preferred a general rather than an epidural, yeah? Yes. I suppose... But you're saying people weren't being offered that option for months on end, is that true? No, no, they weren't because, I suppose, because the risk of COVID, you know, when you're in surgery. But 
that that's okay when you're trying to navigate this at the start. And it's not that it's okay, but it was it was horrific. You know, it was a pandemic. But for them to come up with this strategy of testing women, like why wasn't it done after two months? It took seven months to start testing women for COVID. Yeah, that's that, that's you know, I mean. And was COVID being put in as the reason why you couldn't have the general? Yes, yes. COVID, the the risk of COVID and cross-infection. And I suppose I'm just wondering, was this at a local level or a national level? Because it's coming out that this wasn't happening in Dublin, if you know what I mean. Yeah, because they've been saying since day one, the HSE uh, and the chief medical officer and all of those, that it's at the end of the day, the public health advice will be what it is. But each yes. of our medic of our maternity hospitals have their own say over what over what they do. Yeah, so we're in kind of in the hands of whoever is running the hospital, and um, and I suppose on the morning that we had it, it was the twelfth of November. Obviously, I had to go in a half five on my own. Um, for for that, so I'd never been under general anaesthetic before, and um, and I did kind of sit there in the bed and. I did hear a lady ask, you know, am I having spinal or or an or a general? And I did get the essence that there wasn't a choice given to her. And yeah. I felt as a private patient, I was getting, you know, it was literally the two-tier system right there. Right. I, I just I just felt like, you know, she was so vulnerable as as I was, but I had someone over my shoulder, and I had someone, you know, you know, I was yeah. private basically. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry for for your losses. I mean, I mean, and it must have been much harder to go through them. When did you say Derek is his name? Derek, my lovely husband. Derek, when he couldn't yes. he couldn't yeah. be there when you needed him. Not when they said you needed him, but rather when you needed him. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I suppose it was very traumatic, really. Um, for anybody that's been through a miscarriage, yeah. um, and you know that staff. My God, the staff in CUMH are. Unbelievable! I had two two nurses in particular that would have kind of stood out for me. That were just you know they were just amazing and the backbone of the hospital. Do you remember their names? Yes, yeah. You know, my first time. You know, it was it was it's actually my husband's birthday when he to fucking when I had to go in, and it was um it was Louise okay. and and there was Janet then when I had to go up for surgery. Yeah. No, the there. the reason I asked is yesterday we were inundated because yeah. yesterday Ryan, it was the International Day of the Nurse uh, yeah. and this is kind of the International Week of the Nurse and the Midwife so, uh, you know, why, don't, why not mention their names? They did a fine, fine job. Yeah. We, we think at this stage... There's bereavement with yeah. midwives in there as well and yeah. look, I think sometimes miscarriage can be dismissed. It can be, you know, I know that myself and it's something I've always empathised with people and I have a lot of friends that have gone through this but the bereavement midwives are saying that they're going into scans with women that have had a stillbirth previous and the subsequent pregnancies partners can't be with them that's that's why I'm, I'm on the radio today because I don't think the general public realize the extent of this yeah Rainer, thank you very much for speaking with me and as I said I condolences to you and Derek on your two losses last year um in, in mid-pandemic and not having him there when she needed him was the hardest part, I think, um, for, for Reenact. 1850-715-996. We had a message yesterday in the middle of all of this, which I read out, and I just said I'd leave it there and see would there be any 
reaction. There was, and we'll hear it next. 1850 715 996. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With dairy-made premium spread. 100% natural and made in Cork using West Cork cream. Hello there, I'm Graham Norton. Each year, the Cork's 96FM Giving for Living Radiothon raises vital funds to support cancer services here in Cork. Please donate what you can to help so that these essential Cork charities can continue their great work. The Giving for Living Radiothon, May 20th to 22nd, raising funds for Cork Cancer Services. C96FM, bye. Only on Cork's 96FM. So in the midst of our discussion yesterday about the partners not being allowed into the hospitals and the whole public health argument and the COVID argument and and all of that. This message came in um, on the phone at 1850-715-996 and it said, the ladies picketing outside the COMH should remember that the nurses and doctors inside are far more useful to you than your husband or partner. These ladies should get over themselves. A generation ago, a man wouldn't be allowed inside the door. Linda, I think you were driving at the time, were you? No, I wasn't. I wasn't driving at the time. Um, I was actually painting my fireplace and (laughs) I just stopped. I was like, whoa. Yeah. Because these women need to get over themselves was just such... Like it resonated with me, and I was like, "What is this person? I don't know if it was a man, if it was a woman." Well, I was a woman, I'm told. Like just the lack of empathy, yeah. I could not get over. Do you know what it did in me, Linda? It is evoked a memory in me uh, of the night my sister was born, uh, my younger sister. Uh, I remember we were all staying in my in my grandmother's house that night. And my dad got a phone call at 5 a.m. to say that he had a daughter and I had a sister. That was the extent of the communication. So it was normal at the time for the man not to be there. And, you know? Yeah, but, like, society has moved on. You know what I mean? Oh, I know that, yeah. That, so, like, when they're saying, like, years ago, men wouldn't have been allowed in. But, like, now they, well, okay, now they're not, you know, just for the... The delivery. In normal times, they are. Yeah. Yes, they are, and like they're a big part of it, yeah. you know. No, like, I was at I was at the birth of my own children. Um, yeah, and sure, I have like I have a nineteen-month-old and yeah. I have a three-month-old. So, yeah. like in quick succession, there was regular, normal, you know, hospital yeah. normal life. Well, um, c- yeah, compare one with the other, Linda. Compare the, compare both of those one with the other. Like having himself there. 19 months ago and not there three months ago. What was the difference? Well, I suppose because it was my second time, I felt more prepared and like I had grilled my consultant. I, you know, I was like, is it okay? What's it like in the hospital? Um, you know, will will I be, you know, okay? And she assured me, you know, that now that the vaccinations, my baby was born in February, so, you know, like everybody had had their first dose of the vaccine and everything so like she really reassured me and I felt okay in that sense but when I went in the second time um, so the first time I'd had a section and the second time I planned on having a natural birth that was my hope Um, so I went in at about 2am 
and went into the, my husband dropped me at the door. I went into um, the emergency room where you go first and there was nobody else in there. Um, so I was just told to go through and I was like, like, does anybody know I'm here? Will I go and knock on the door? What will I do? Obviously all the while like contracting and kind of going, oh God, can't move. Um, there was no one there. No, so like when you, there was somebody at the desk and I was like, okay, so I rang and I need to go to the emergency room. They're like, yeah, just through the double doors and down to the right. But you know, like when you're there, you're in the waiting area then. So like you're waiting on a nurse or a midwife to come out to you. And was there nobody at reception in the ED? No, there oh. was. Okay. There was. No, well, see, it's it's the maternity hospital reception. Yeah. And then like you go down to the um They have their own emergency room. room. So, yeah. yeah. And that, there so was no one there? No, Crazy. like they're in behind the door. So like, yeah. I was like, do they know I'm here? Like, what will I do? So I just kind of waited and, you know, like kind of walking past the glass panels in hopes that they'll see you and come out. But obviously they're busy inside as well, you know. So anyway, they did come out and they brought me in and they checked me and they scanned and all that. Um, and they were like, yeah, we keep you. Um, and they did the COVID test. So at that point I was like, so like I'm definitely in labour and like I'll text my husband and she was like, yeah, you can text your husband. Um, obviously it'll be like a few hours before he'll be allowed in or anything like that. And I said, okay. So she said, you can go and wait now in the reception area. And she said, I'll be out to you and I'll take you downstairs yeah. to the induction room. Now I wasn't being induced or anything, but that's just where they were taking me. Yeah. Um, so I said, okay. And so then I was out at reception and again, there was like a security man on and um, there was a man on at reception and I was there again on my own in labour, you know so you're just going, oh my god like walking around and then stopping and breathing and you know mm. very, feeling very alone Yes, because if your husband is there at least you feel like, you know okay, like not all the, fo- I'm, not, I'm not just a weirdo walking around, like breathing on my own my husband is here and you know you have mm. support mm-hmm. so then the midwife came out and she brought me down to the induction room and um, introduced me to the midwife down there and she said, this is Mary. And I was like, oh my God, are you Mary so-and-so? And she said, yeah. And I was like, you're my friend's sister. <laughs> you know, because we had the masks on and everything. And like the relief I felt at knowing somebody face. then. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, oh, thank God it's you. You know, like because I knew her and I was just like, oh, I could talk to her. You know, not that you wouldn't be talking to them. Or, what what you know, was that feeling, Linda? What, was it a sense of familiarity of another person that you know? Yeah, really? totally. And it was, is it, is it as knew. basic as that? I don't know. Like, for me, it was. And my, my whole thing, the whole way through, um, I went private. And I was like, at least Maureen will be there. My consultant, Maureen, I was like, she'll be there and I'll know her even if, you know... JC's not there at the start. She'll be there. Mm. So when I went in anyway, and we were in the induction room, and Mary said to me, "You know, now it's the weekend, and Maurice won't be on. So you'll have like the consultant on call. You'll still have consultant care." And I was like, "Oh, but it won't be Maurice." Like, you know, all of these things were so important to me the second time because my husband wasn't going to be there till the end. I see. You yeah. know. Yes. Um. And so it goes on, obviously, and it was much faster than the first time when my husband was texting, and I was like, please, will you go to sleep? Because it's not, nothing's going to happen until the morning. Where was he? At home he was? He was at home. Now we're lucky. We live in Wilton. Yeah. So, 
Um, but like they're you know I've heard of other people like who are living you know West Cork and they're sleeping in the car they're yeah. eating and the stories of people sleeping in a car you know? I've spoken to one or two of them yeah, yeah. so we were lucky in that sense but um, things went on anyway I was in the induction room and now it's a lovely room and everything but then the midwife is going in and out because they have to keep notes on how things are going mm. and like obviously the contractions are getting more intense they're getting closer together and I was on my own for that and I just kept thinking God, if I was, if this was my first time, I would be completely like overwhelmed. I probably would have been bawling. Whereas, you know, I, I, I kind of knew a little bit from the first time, you know, that I'd be okay and it wasn't going to be, you know, it wasn't going to come like all of a sudden or anything. But, you know, you just don't know the first time. You're not in the know. You haven't been through it. And yeah. like to be on your own like that, I was just like, this would be horrendous because you are, you were on your own like for long periods of time. Now, the mm-hmm. midwife was always just outside the room or, you know, in the corridor. Mm-hmm. But if your husband was... And, like, and if they're going to be outside the room and you're in a room, like, why can't your husband be in there? And, you know, to the person who, who made that call to us yesterday, right, mm-hmm. who, who makes the point that a generation ago a man wouldn't be inside the door and the unfinished sentence, which I'm assuming I'm going to finish for that person, will be, well, we just got on with it. That was how it was. And you just did it. That's what women are doing now. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like that's no, but what women back are then doing. It was right the norm, now. you know. Yeah, but mm. it's not now. Yeah. yeah. It's not, and like you know, we. Back then, they on. were prepared for and that. And as well, like they knew. You know, the, they knew from the day, if you like, they knew from the time they were pregnant that when it came it to being... Be a solo it, thing. it was going to be there. That was how it was going to be. You and many people of your generation, every of your generation, and indeed in my own time, when my own kids were born, and that's 20-odd years ago now, it was pretty much the norm as well that, 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 that the partner went in. So it was a different normal. It was totally different normal, you know? And I suppose now as well, you know, the whole no visitors. Like, the dad isn't a visitor. The dad is a parent. You know, the father is a parent of the child. It's a carer of the child. Mm. And again, I suppose... like and medicine has changed to accept that too. Medicine didn't see it that way 50 years ago. Medicine does see it that way now. Yeah. And I just think, you know, I suppose, and again, I go back to like people whose first time it is. Um, I just think, you know, that they haven't been to scans. My husband was lucky enough to go to all the scans of our first baby. So, you know... I think it kind of dawns on them then when they see the scan and they see the baby moving, you know, that like, they're like, whoa, there's a baby there. Because obviously the mom feels everything as the baby's growing and it's getting all the kicks and everything. But it's a bit surreal for the dad, I think. Yes. Yeah. So like to miss out on all of that and then like to only be there for a little while and in recovery for a small while after. And then you don't see your baby for depending on whether you have a section or a yeah. natural birth, three to four days. You yeah. don't see your yeah. baby I think again? modern modern men are more tactile as 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 new dads than than my father's generation was and even, even to a point even my was Do you know modern it's they're more that that separation seems to be affecting younger men an awful lot more than I have to say Linda an awful lot more than I thought it would yeah And I think even probably like grandparents now, you know, like everything has moved. So let's say if my dad wasn't allowed in when like I was born, you know, it would be very different if it was him now. You know what I mean? I do. 
I do. Times have changed. Thought totally, processes. and people have changed with the times. My, my I, answer to that call would have been, well, yeah, a generation ago, if you didn't know who the father was, she ended up down in Bespra and never saw her child again. Okay. That was my... Do you know what I mean? So we, yeah. we, 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 we've, we've moved on. We realised that was wrong. So maybe we should move on from that generational thinking as well, that the way it was done back in the day isn't necessarily right. No, not at all. Like, it was accepted because it was the norm, as you say. But, like, let's say the lady... Like, I was getting emotional on the phone listening um, to Renuk before I I was on and just, you know, want to pass on my condolences, obviously, to her. Mm-hmm. To go through that on your own is absolutely horrific. And, you know, like, they were the people I was thinking... It was Renuk I was thinking of yeah. when the woman said, you know, these women need to just get on with it. Yes. And I'm sorry. Yeah. That is not okay, you know? Yes, I see your point. And I'm, I'm very, I, I don't, like when I text my friends and I was like, guys, I'm going on PJ Coogan in the morning. You know, I'm not that person who texts in and get angry. About well, you are. You've just really done it. I tell you something, hard. Linda, you've done them. You, you're a textbook mes- lesson as to how to do this. You sent in a message. You were, you, you were nervous about going on the air. You've given a textbook lesson of how to do it. Well done. Thanks. <laughs> Well done. It's been a great conversation. Thank you so much for calling us and being in touch with the opinion line. That's Linda, eighteen fifty seven one five nine nine six. That caller yesterday was a woman and said, "Look, you know, in my time, we never saw the father until we came out of the child, and you know what that was then, and this is now, and that was then. And remember, it, when that was the case, if you were unfortunate enough not to know who the father was, or if the father wasn't around." then your child could well be taken off you and you might never see them again. And you could have been whacked into Besborough for eight or nine months or more. We now know that wasn't right. So looking back at it, the way it was done, but that wasn't right either. It wasn't. We, 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 things move, things change. And just because it was the way it was done one time doesn't make it the right way now. 1850-715996 Kate says all these people are in the same bubble Should they, they should all be allowed in uh, John and Cove says what's the point in us men being there listening to women roaring and screeching we'd be better off outside John I thought that I kind of said well what am I doing here I'm about as useful as a chocolate teapot but the value of it to the partner, to the woman, to the person having the baby. That's something we as men can't quantify. They can't put it into words. They can't quantify it. 1850-715-996. Pat Buckley, Sinn Féin to Dean Corky, says common sense should be paramount. Such a stressful situation, the partner should be allowed to accompany them from the start to finish. Our health system at management level lacks responsibility. Well, Pat, in the context of COVID, I suppose COVID and little babies is very, very, very dangerous. Some shocking reports from around the world of little babies that got the virus. So you have to protect them. And you've got to protect the staff. And you've got to protect the moms. And, you know, we have to take precautions in the course of a pandemic. But now where we are is that the chief medical officer has said, while it's a local decision... There's no good public health reason for it. And the Taoiseach has said he doesn't want it to be going on. And the Minister for Health have said he doesn't want it to be going on. 
1850-715-996. I've more stuff coming in. My mother had nine of us at home with the assistance of a nurse. It's a bad crisis we're in now, but it can't be all about me, myself and I. I'm a lady myself. We're all strong. We must bear the burden. My own daughter had her own baby on her own in London during the pandemic and she just had to get on with it. I had a miscarriage in December. Sorry for that. But my partner couldn't come in. When I was in the ward, there was other women with their partners. When I asked, I was told there were different circumstances and they could have their partners in. There seems to be no understandable policy. It makes me angry. Someone should explain it. I I mentioned this at the very top of the program about a little conversation I had when I was cutting the grass. And I cut the grass. I wear gloves. I wear those, you know, those cheap, not surgical gloves, those cheap latex gloves. I just don't like that green gunk that gets under your nails and you can't get it off from the grass. I don't like it. And I don't like when I'm doing a, a changing a tyre or poking around under the bonnet of a car. I don't like grease and muck. I just don't like it. Um, even when I'm doing the barbecue, when I'm cleaning the barbecue or loading the barbecue with charcoal, I wear gloves. I just don't particularly like it. Um, now, according to Kieran. On WhatsApp, you're a snob, says he. Wearing gloves? Oh, me nail varnish might be damaged. No working man wears gloves. Tell that to a surgeon. Uh, I consider him a working man too. <laughs> I, uh, I know. <laughs> Kieran is, I think, taking the mickey of small this. Fair play. But no, I, the reason I mentioned it is there's a, a couple of surveys have come out. One in the in the UK conducted by a company called Prospectus Global into what makes you posh? What makes you posh or makes you a snob in, in, in maybe Giron's world? Deborah's got a good one here, actually. Deborah's, Deborah's got a great one. Uh, Deborah understands what we're after here. For example, if you went to boarding school, they say, you're posh. Uh, if you have paintings of your ancestors... Now, I don't mean you have photographs of your dad in his under-14 St. Nick's jersey. That's not what we mean. We mean paintings. Uh, your dinner parties are catered. I don't mean the patchy pizza come to the door now. You know, you actually have a caterer. You know how to eat properly with a knife and fork. Like, sorry, is that an unusual skill in 2021? You have a gardener. Uh, not called dad. Um, if you ski, apparently, according to this British finding, if you ski, you're posh. You call everyone darling. No one's called me darling in years. The wife doesn't even call me darling. She says, oi! I think that's what they call in my house most of Oi! If you call the toilet the loo, you're posh. You what? <laughs> if you know Latin. Latin! They're still teaching it in some of the schools. But I'm just wondering what, what you think. Um, is, there, is there anything that you think would, would set, sort of set you apart as being posh? Fergal said, watch how a person stores their tea, right? Like me and, me and Fergal, and, you, do you store your tea around in a circle? Partly if you store your tea over and back. Think about how you do this, right? How did you store your tea or your coffee this morning? Did you do it in a little circle? 
or did you go over and back and over and back and over? Apparently, if you go over and back, you're posh. That's a bit like people eating soup, right? And I don't mean slurping it out of a mug. But you know the way with soup, you're, you're supposed to, I've never seen anyone do this, you're supposed to tip the bowl away from you and sort of use a backhand motion on the spoon. Now, I've never seen anyone doing that. That apparently makes you posh if you do that. It's one of the telltale signs. Uh, Deborah's got a good one. If you, if you say toe her and not toker, um, Deborah, that's not even posh. That's just not from Cork. If you say tow her, not toker. There is another tow her up the country. Uh, so they call it tow her up there, but down here it's toker. And you even have to tell people sometimes, it's not tow, it's not tow her, it's toker. And it's actually toha, toker, toker. It's a bit like, you know, sorry, where's that? Gurin the brehe? Gurin the, gurin the, no, gran. Do you know? So if you don't know how to pronounce names of places. So if you had a new neighbour and you thought they look a bit sort of uh-uh, a bit pointy, pointy, how would you notice? Fergal's idea would be to bring them in and offer them tea and wonder how they stir it. How would you know if somebody was a snob? Or how would you know if somebody was um, was one of our own, as it were? Quickly, I want to go to Councillor Tony Fitzgerald of Fianna Fáil about this application for the waste management facility. Tony, there's a bit of a, a bit of a um, development this morning. This seems to be the the reinter in the reinstatement of an old permit up there. Yeah. Good morning, PJ. Yeah. I mean, there's you know a lot of concern this morning uh, in relation to this news of a, a permit uh, uh, given by City Council. Uh, for the recycling centre, and uh, apparently, and I can imagine news. We're trying to get news as quickly as possible to residents in the area, uh, and we'll get that quickly. But um, it seems that it's a it's a renewal of a permit of an existing permit uh, that was there for many years um, uh, in the Turkey Industrial Estate. Um, there's still some queries around the renaming of the company, which we, I can't go into at the minute, but we're we'll yeah. trying to establish that. Get so closer to the phone, to, there, Tony. Yeah, sorry, yeah. we're trying to establish the. The, the, the re- renaming of the company and all that, it needs to be established. Right, but the permit, today. I think, is it Mr. Joyce at the council has confirmed that it is an old permit being reissued, but... Yeah, yeah. Cox City Council has confirmed that it's the renewal of an existing permit and it has been there for many, many years. Um, so we have to query now the level of activity, whether there was activity there on the site, existed the, the existing site, okay. um, and what 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 uh, what the, what what we needs to be examined there. Apparently, the the, the permit has never lapsed, right? Um, and you know, so we we we've a lot of work to do there. So, so the, there's more there's there. more to come on it. Listen, I'm going to leave it there, Tony, for no reason other than time. Thanks for that. So that permit now, it's not a new one. It's a reissuing of an old one which never lapsed. But there's more to be learnt on this, I expect. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With Dairy Made Premium Spread. 100% natural and made in Cork using West Cork Cream. The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? 
1850 715 996. Text or WhatsApp 083 396 996. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan on Cork's 96fm. 1850 715 Yeah. Um, what makes you posh? Someone just texted in with the, the the spoon, you know, the one where you go across and back rather than around and round. You're not posh, says, is it Liam? You're just a psychopath. 1850 Still stuff coming in about uh, CUMH and the restrictions and what should be allowed and what should not be allowed and we we have to be cognizant of the fact that even though the chief medical officer now said that there is no public health reason as to why these restrictions should still be in place well he has also left it down to the management of each individual maternity unit and we kind of have to accept that they know their unit a bit better maybe than Dr. Houlihan they know their unit uh, and they know the risks uh, and they're assessing the risks locally. That's all we can say, I would imagine, unless there's more to it than that, and we will stay across it. As regards to what makes you posh, uh, I wonder, is it money? Um, money, like money, like mega bucks, like mega zillion bucks. The highest paid athlete in the world in the last 12 months. Do you know who it was? And you'd certainly never describe him as posh. One thing you might not describe him as, you never describe him as posh anyway. I'll get to that in a while. But let's go back to that story. And it's kind of a rolling, developing story from the north side where the permit has been issued by the council for a waste facility in Churchfield. Now, that story broke last evening. There was a letter or a a notice of a permit flying around. Uh, There's no need to mention companies or anything like that, but the, the, the permit was granted under the Waste Management Facility Permit and Registrations Regulations of 2007 and under the Waste Management Act of 1996. There was consternation in in the area because recently on board Planola said that there was enough of a concentration of this kind of business up there and there was no more permissions should be granted. It's now emerged this morning that that permit may be, if you like, a reheating of an old one or a reissuing of an old one. Uh, Councillor Ken O'Flynn, good morning to you. Have have we good. got 100% clarification here yet? Good morning, PJ. How are you keeping? Good, um, good, good. P- PJ, just to leave you know, yes, it broke late last evening. So, you know, you couldn't really talk to officials um, after nine o'clock in, in the evening, you know, so it was difficult to get information. Uh, so I sent off an email there to the Director of Services. I've had uh, two replies back. I've actually had three replies back from him. Um, he, in fairness to him, he went off last night and he started making inquiries um, because he was working late. I think I got an email back from him at 11 o'clock at night and confirming this morning that this is not a new permit. Uh, it's the renewal of an existing permit on the site, right. on a permitted site. So that's the latest update that's confirmed from the Director of Services. I, I, look, the next step is the, is the city manager after that. So I, it's as official as it's going to get. And how it reads is, dear Councillor Finn, I can confirm that this is not a new permit, but a renewal of a permit that is existingly permitted on the site. So do we, we don't know where the confusion arose, do we? Did people just assume it was a new permit when there was a well, poster look, around it? 
you know, look, you look, you look at documents at times and you see them going around and they're very hard to determine whether it's in permit or not, or it's in new planning permission or it's in old planning permission. Look, it confuses myself and it's, in, it's, it's my business day in, day out when it comes to these forms and permits and things like that. Um, so look, so that's why you always have to double and triple check and not believe everything you read on social media because it can be interpreted in the wrong way at times. Uh, and I don't think there was any uh, maliciousness from, from the general public about it because there was lots of just con- general concern and my phone from via text and, and WhatsApps and, and Facebook messages it didn't stop until until one o'clock last okay. night with people's concerns about it. But look, the official line that is coming back from Cork City Council is that it is not a new permit, is the renewal of an existing permitted site. Okay, thank you very much for that, uh, Councillor Kenneth Flynn, for that clarification, which is received from the Director of Services, uh, Mr Joyce, at City Hall. It is a, sir, uh, an existing permit renewed. Uh, Councillor McNugent, make, does, that, does that ease the, the confusion at all? Yeah, PJ, I was trying to look into it last night. It seems that there's any permissions going back to at least 2004 for that particular site. Um, now, there is a new operator here. I think there was a ch- change of ownership in the last number of years. So, yeah. so there is a new operator who has a permit now. Uh, we're in we're not right. naming any operators, by no, the way. On the basis, it's a perfectly legitimate issuing of a permit. So we're not going to name anybody, you know? No, exactly, PJ. Actually, I've been up there... Um, to be fair, I went up there the other day because, you know, I had been contacted. Um, so I went up there the other day. I actually met uh, the owner of the new company. Um, he's he's a local lad. Now, I did make the point to him, you know, that there will be a feeling in the wider community that Janet Connolly Road, and I already have an agenda for the next local area committee meeting, that there is a lot, you know, it is oversaturated with waste collection facilities. But he's an order in terms of the permit um, he got um, and there were previous permits as well for other operators there. Um, so I suppose we would still make the point in terms of, you know, there is issues on John F. Connolly Road. Mm. In terms but, of and what, I think on board Tenola, to be fair, Mick, has, has taken that into account in that it has said pretty clearly there to be no new uh, permits issued. But this is just the reissuing of an older one. Yes, that seems to be the case. Um, it seems that from at least 2011 to 2019, while there was planning there for on this site, there was nobody operating there. A previous operator, it seems, did have a permit, but doesn't seem to have been um, using this particular site. And this site is actually in between two existing facilities, two existing large facilities. But this new operator um, has got a permit now in, in, in their own name, and they've started operating and I had a look there the other day, PJ. It is kind of, it's a small operation. It wouldn't be anywhere near the scale of the two either side. And people would know the companies I'm talking about up there. Mm. Um, it's mainly a skip business, what he's doing. So what I'm saying, it's, um, it's dry waste. It skips mostly. He brings in the skips and the stuff is transferred out. Mm. Um, that's what he's, do- that's okay. what, uh, what he's doing there. Okay. Um, I suppose he has his permit, but the wider point still probably stands in terms of John S. Connolly Road. And yeah. You know, yeah. Well, like, I mean, I, I think it's not be, with, with it not being new. I suppose make that's a kind of a moot point in that it people thought it was new. It, it isn't new. It's it's the reinstatement of of an old 
permit. So we just wanted to get a, a few voices on for balance. Thanks for that. Uh, Make Nugent, 1850-715-996. It was very confusing last night. I think we have clarified it this morning for people. It's not really the biggest story or the big story we thought it was. It's but it's such a sensitive issue in the area. Come here, some big television news breaking this morning. And we know that there's at least two document there are two documentaries due this year on the Sophie Toscan Duplantier story. One made by Jim Sheridan, the filmmaker. The other made by Netflix. There's also a new book has landed on my desk this week and I'm looking forward to getting stuck into it uh, about the whole case. But now I read uh, breaking this morning you will remember the West Cork podcast. If you haven't listened to it, do. It's one of the best podcasts I have ever listened to. Made the, the making of it, the production of it, the groundwork that went into it, the recording of it. It was just, on so many levels, the West Cork podcast was perfection. Now, that, the team that made it, Sam Bungie and Jennifer Ford, they are to make a television series, but it gets better. Not only are they making a television series based on the West Cork podcast, but they are working with the team that made Chernobyl, that incredible series from last year, of which we've spoken many times on the program. So they're getting together with the makers of Chernobyl to make a television version of the West Cork podcast. That is huge television news from Cork this morning. 1850 715 996. Can we just talk? The opinion line on Cork's 96 FM. With Dairy Made Premium Spread, 100% natural and made in Cork using West Cork cream. Simon Murdoch and the best music mix. Weekdays from midday on Cork's 96 FM. All the big tunes and giveaways to help you fly through your afternoon in Cork. And if it's happening Leaside, you hear about it here first. On the air, straight after the opinion line on Cork's 96 FM. Kieran, who was giving out about me or laughing about me wearing gloves when I cut the grass, he says he feels a little bit misquoted. He said, Real men don't wear gloves. And he was referring to gardening. Fair enough. I mean, can you imagine going down the mines, says Kieran. Oh, let me out, I'm getting dirty. <laughs> Thankfully, I've never had to contemplate going down a coal mine, Kieran. I wait to see when you read this. Why wouldn't I? A few more things. Yeah, Paul reminds us that it, there's not just a toker up the country or a toher up the country. There's one in or near Bailnablaw. Is there? That I didn't know. I wonder how do they say it? Do they say toher or toker? The T-O-G-H-E-R that's down near Bailnablaw. Do they call that toker or do they call it toher? Are there loads of tohers or just one toker? On WhatsApp, if you hold your cup handle with your small finger sticking out, that's posh. If you have a cup with handles small enough to need to stick out your bottom finger, then you're posh as well. Is another one, another version of that. Or you do with the right... I don't even know why he, the, the mugs in this building have handles, because I don't know anyone who uses the handle. <laughs> they just grab the mug. 1850 Now, wind farms 
are the future. Generating electricity using wind farms, it's sustainable. Uh, there's plenty of wind. We've no shortage of it. It's, you know, it's, we, we need to get rid of fossil fuels. We need to find other ways to generate uh, our electricity. And, and, and all of that is the future. And there's also a network. It's in the climate change bill. There's to be a network of wind farms at sea almost forming a necklace around the country. I, I don't know how many of them, but there will be almost a necklace of wind farms at sea around the country generating our electricity for the future. It is the new way. It's where we're headed. But Patrick, you're a bit uncomfortable about it. Good morning to you. Good morning, PJ. How are you? I'm not too bad, PJ, and thanks very much for giving me the opportunity to come on the show again. Happy happy to do so. What's the problem with the wind farms, as you see it? Well, it's not the problem with the wind farms, as you said. It's the future. It's the designated future. It's it's the cure. It's the, the, it's the silver bullet to all our energy needs, it seems to be. And look, we, we don't know is that true or not, but we're not going to stand in its way. But what we are concerned about is that... Um, we won't be treated like the Indians or the Aborigines that we don't have a piece of paper to say we own where we've worked for generations and hundreds and hundreds of years. You're a fisherman, and, right. Yes, so we represent fishermen here. In, in, sorry, I should have introduced myself. Um, my name is Patrick Murphy. I'm from the Irish South and West Fish Producers Organisation based in Castletown Bear. So we're one of five producer organisations in the country that represent our fishermen. And... Um, there are other groups, of course, um, but we, we represent 50 vessels of sizes ranging from 7 metres up to 40 metres. Right. So um, we have a, every type of fishermen in, in our organisation, from big to small, that travel the oceans around us. And um, we try and stand up for them and speak for them when, when the need arises, okay. which seems to be fairly often. So, so what, what is the problem well, with I, the wind I, I, farms? It's not a problem. Uh, per se, right? We just want to be at the table with the decision makers for making this because uh, we are going to be the ones impacted primarily. So the fishing grounds, because they're coming into our environment, if we are concerned about spawning grounds and the effects it'll have, of course, if you... Imagine, PJ, somebody said in the local football pitch they're going to put a road down through the middle of it. I think the GA pitch would be concerned about that, would Mm. you think? Okay, fair enough. So, like, what we are looking for, and it has been happening with our good selves here in the Irish South and West, that we're working with these companies and we're developing ideas and solutions to some of the problems that we see will arise from um, this new entrant into the in, into the environment. As we keep talking about biodiversity, uh, anything that comes into an environment will change the biodiversity of that area, whether it is uh, somebody ploughing a, a field, set spuds or turnips or carrots or somebody going up to the hill and putting up trees, that's of course is going to change and have a massive effect on the biodiversity of the area that was there before somebody came into it. So we need to be cognizant of this PJ and as I said, these fishermen are out trying to make it a living. We've seen 20% of their resources of their fish stripped away from them with the stroke of a pen and given to our neighbours. We're where they have now 75% of the fish in their waters and the Irish fishermen are down to 15. So, you know, we're facing enough as it is. We have marine protected areas coming in on top of us as well too and we don't object to that as long as it's sensible and reasoned and that it makes sense. So you you don't protect, uh, let's put it this way, a rock 
right, where you think that there's going to be grass or, or turnips or spuds, like I said, grown on. It has to be reasoned. So t- here's my question, PJ, to you and the listeners. When you're asking for advice about the marine environment, who's the first person that springs to mind that knows about that environment from top to bottom, from generations and generations of working inside it? Would that be a fisherman? It'd be one of the people I'd be looking at, yeah. yeah. Who else? I'd be looking at anyone in the Merchant Navy people, I suppose. They know they'd the know, sea. Oh, they'd know about, of course, the transportation and the movement of the sea. But would they know about the marine life in the sea? That's going to be, you know... These, well, I'd these ask would, a marine biologist, I suppose. Absolutely, I agree with you. So, but, so now you've identified two, a marine biologist and a fisherman. Who else? You tell me. That's what I'm saying to you. There's very little there. I agree with you. Mm. It's hard to find them. So you've identified two people. That means fishermen are 50%. <laughs> he, he, he'd be quite an elderly man now. I, I believe he's still alive. I hope he is because I haven't seen him in many years. I, 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 I'd have in, in, but in previous times, I'd, I'd have phoned up my old friend Matt Murphy and Sharkin. There you go. Now, and, and I know Matt as well, the same namesake, a very good man for the environment. His sons produce uh, uh, oysters in, in, uh, in right. the bay. We ourselves produce mussels as well, too, in Roaring Water Bay. So absolutely a, a good man to talk about the environment. So there's a third man now, so you, but I would consider him a scientist. So he'd come underneath that category. But, of course, like myself, uh, luckily enough, we have experience and knowledge in other areas of the sea. So what I'm saying to you is this, PJ. It makes sense for me that we should be at the table when we're making the decision. And, and you're not. And we're not. Right. Yes. And who, who decides who's at the table? Oh, sure. We have a government and we have departments. And, uh, it, you know, we had public consultations on this, but we were one organisation, a group that weren't part of that um, working group. Yeah. Stay there for me, Patrick. I'm bringing uh, uh, Jody Power, or Councillor Jody Power, is a member of the uh, council in Waterford, but he's an engineering lecturer at the National Maritime College here in Cork. Stay there, Patrick. Jody, good morning to you. Uh, good morning to you, and good morning to Patrick as well. Do you think Thank that you people like Patrick should be involved in the discussion with regard to these wind farms? Oh, I think that's a no-brainer. There's no question about it whatsoever. Their, as I say, their knowledge of the environment and the whole conditions, subsea conditions in that area, very vital area for fishing, if I might say so, on the south coast of Ireland for spawning fish and all the rest of it, their input would be invaluable. So why do you think they're not at the table? Uh, well, I don't understand quite where they're coming from. I know the last really uh, marine legislation that was put out there and habitat protection put out there was in 1933. There was the Foreshore Act. But right now, because of this offshore development that's going to happen, there's major work happening at the moment. For instance, Marine Strategy Framework Directive. We have the Convention on the Biological Diversity coming through all this part with the National Parks and Wildlife Service, which have a, a huge job of work to do in that department, okay, to get that right. So that's ongoing at the moment. We have the new Marine Planning and Development Management Bill coming out, and that will certainly be open up to all people to put their to put their uh, their submissions in. And I, I'm sure the farm, the uh, not just the farm, but the fishermen will of the of the country will be putting their uh, their spoke in on that one. 
yeah. as regards to the National Planning Framework Directive and strategic environmental assessments that all must go on before anything yeah. happens. Okay, all these are, are the, the, the legal protections that will be there, like to protect yeah. fishermen. Patrick, obviously, will will speak up on behalf of the industry, but but you know, sure. in in your own area of expertise, like what kind of what kind of knowledge could Patrick supply that maybe you couldn't? Well, for instance, we're, if we're talking about deep offshore, we're talking about the semi-submersibles, which have a minimum impact on anything. That's where they just basically float and bob on the top uh, with some anchors down, potential lake platforms or anchored platforms way offshore. These will just have just anchoring positions fixed into the, into the seabed and would have minimum impact. Perhaps a little bit more of an impact would be the fixed offshore wind farms. Now, we're very, very limited to what we can do with those because they can only be in County Waterford because, as you know, we're on the Atlantic, we're on the continental shelf of Europe. So our waters go very deep, very quick. So for, we can't put fixed bed uh, offshore wind turbines in a depth more than 50 metres. So the only place where it's viable for that would be a short base of the coast of Waterford and mainly the east coast. So the south-southwest people uh, of the coast need not have any worry about that at all. We're just too deep for fixed, uh, fixed bed uh, offshore turbines. Mm-hmm. Let me bring in a third voice here, and that is, uh, stay there, uh, Jody and Patrick, thank you both. Yeah. Yvonne Cronin from DP Energy, which is a Cork-based offshore wind farm developing company. Yvonne, good morning. Good morning, PJ. Um, the point that Patrick, and the point that Jody are making is that the knowledge of the fishing industry, the knowledge of those involved, is invaluable in deciding where the wind farms would go for biodiversity and environmental safety. Would you agree with me? Or with them, rather? 100%, PJ, yes. And just um, to note, I'm also a marine biologist, so it's great that we could have the knowledge of a marine biologist and the fisheries on the call. Um, So... We, we are working currently with um, all the different fishing industry representatives to try and get as much information, first of all, out to the fishing um, representatives, but also very, very important to us is to use the, the local knowledge and the expertise of the fisheries to know how to design surveys, how to design our offshore wind farms. And hopefully what we're trying to do is create a framework of open and honest two-way communication. Yeah. Like there, I'm reading from the Southern Star here, there were seven large-scale farms planned off the coasts of Cork and Waterford. Now, that's a lot of turbines, presumably generating a lot of very valuable uh, sustainable electricity. But if say there, Yvonne, like Patrick, if I was to ask you, and I'm, again, I'm asking you to go off the top of your head here. So say the coast of, of County Cork, like where would you absolutely not put a wind farm or advise not to put one? Well, PJ, this is where the, the, the discussion comes in. Yes. You have to speak to the fishermen. They know the ground. They've been using this ground for generations. They, they, they protect their own readings of where the fish are because unlike that you'd hear, oh, the fishermen damage the ground, there's readings of fishing tracks been passed down for hundreds of years. So they keep going back to the same spots. Why? Because that's where the fish keep going back to. So it makes nonsense of the thing is that all bottom trawling damages the bottom. If, if, yeah, but no, no, for the simplicity of, yeah, of, a, yeah, of a discussion, so, Patrick, yeah. if there was so one or two places... So what I'm saying is that they yeah. know the ground, so yes. they know every inch of the ground in which they work. 
So when you bring them into the decision-making process and work through with them, you see, as I said, and, and Devon knows this because I speak regularly with Devon, right, is that you have to work out both areas is where both people want to go because the seabed has to be soft and in yeah. a certain manner that the, the, the uh, cables can be buried underneath uh, yeah. and you see what comes underneath. No, but hang on a second now. Coming back to Jody's point, I was one of the members on the working group for the Marine um, framework strategy. So I worked with Damon English, the minister at the time, and we drafted a fantastic document. But once the document is drafted, then the implementation of that document for me is lacking. Yes. So yes. all the provisions were put in place for us to get around the table together and work through any issues that we would have. Yes. And that's what we're calling for in the industry. Yes. And that's and that's the, the broader the broader issue that we're raising here. But if I was just and I possibly am putting you on the spot, but look, you're 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 a fisherman yourself, you, you, you know the coast, you know the area. Like if there was one place as a fisherman yourself that you would absolutely not put a wind farm, where would it be? Well, I wouldn't put it on hard ground, like because your anchoring systems then would be virtually impossible to hold. You see, I'm also involved in aquaculture since I was 18 years of age, and these are flotation uh, farms on the top of the surface. So we have an anchorage system in four different points of where we hold this, and we have weights on them. So I have a little bit of knowledge in that, yeah. in my own um, expertise in, in that. So uh, where where do you put them? You put them on the ground where it's uh, accessible to make sure that the anchorage systems will hold, whether it's a boat. Mm. and drilled in and screwed in. No, but in terms uh, of fishing grounds, in terms of fishing grounds... Oh, well, you don't put them on spawning grounds. You don't put them in areas where the fish are going to breed. So you identify that. That's inside the marine spatial planning document. Yes. You cannot put something into an environment that's going to harm it, regardless of the outcome that you'll be hoping for this. So for us, that's what I'm talking about, being at the table and speaking yes. to Yvonne, being there with them, meeting the government and working through the problems together that might arise. Yeah. Clearly you all agree here, Jody, you agree that Patrick yeah. and his organisation, and Yvonne, you agree that Patrick and his, his organisation should have a, a place at the table, not just the ability to write up reports and send them in. I think, uh, PJ, what's what's actually happening and what is being called for uh, from both sides, of, from both the developers and the fishers, is for the government to create a liaison group so that we can have the, these across tables discussions, so that we can both listen to each other, both at an industry level but also at an individual um, project level. So it's so important at a project level that we ha- we take this fantastic information that Patrick and his fishers have and that we use that to help to design these um, wind farms so that we can move forward together. So individually we can do it, but also at an industry to industry level. So we can sit down and talk and find out where the problems are, but also where the common ground are, the common ground areas are. That we can move forward. This is the start of a very, very long process. These are long-term projects. It's not a flash in the pan. It's not a gold rush. This is a huge industry that's about to develop in Ireland. And we're really at the beginning of it. We only currently have one offshore farm in Ireland, mm. and that's over in Arto. So what we can do, because we're so far behind Europe and so far behind the other countries, we have the advantage that we can look to the other jurisdictions see the mistakes they've made, but also see the good moves they've made in terms of interaction between the fisheries and the industry and take those lessons learned and, and apply them to Ireland mm. so that we can move forward in a positive way. Huh. And, and certainly I know that this group is being set up in the next couple of months, I think, uh, that we'll be able to sit down and have cross-table talks between fisheries and wind developers. Patrick, it sounds to me like you're among friends here. But we are. Like, this, is, this is what we... 
are delighted to be able to come on the radio show that if you have dialogue, if you have cooperation, you will find the solutions because we all know, as you said, we can't be depending on fossil fuels going forward. But you have to understand too, PJ, in our view, it is not right to discommode or put people who have spent generations and generations earning their living, passing it down from generation to generation to be just pushed aside. And thank, uh, I'm delighted Yvonne is on the radio show here to, it, to dispel that, that she is working with this organisation and there are other um, organisations talking to us as well too but we have no seat at the table to bring forward what we're talking about into tangible and uh, actions so talking has to be put aside now and now we have to start doing things and moving forward on it okay all right listen i think we've had a very agreeable conversation here between patrick murphy uh, from the fisheries industry councillor jody power who's an engineering lecturer at the national maritime college and yvonne cronin uh, from DP Energy, who are an offshore, an offshore wind farm developer. And clearly they're agreeable. They say, look, if we're going to be doing these off the coast, and we are, we need to have the expertise of the fisher, fisheries around the table. Which, and hey, listen, it's not like it'll be a shouting match. Listen to the three of them. Uh, we're eco-friendly. We bought ecologically friendly houses and it was important to us. We have tremendous problems with nearby wind farms. I'm so disappointed, and the government and the council are not listening to us. Thank you for talking about this. Shiona, I totally agree with that gentleman. Is there not a sonar noise that only fish can hear and will do damage? I did read wind farms are getting phased out, and there are new concepts being brought forward in the UK. Well, again, Shiona, that's the point, that the fishermen know the ground where the fish spawn, they know the ground where the fish... uh, collect and gather and, and fishing grounds and all that. So they know their industry. They know where their industry thrives. They know where the fish thrive, they, where they breed and spawn. And they want that expertise to be taken into account before any wind farms are put in place. Martin says, hi, PJ. Uh, the ESB will be investing $5 billion in MoneyPoint to switch the site from coal to an offshore wind farm and green hydrogen. Oh, we mentioned, we had a big conversation about hydrogen on the show earlier in the week. And then Donald says, open two-way communication by wind farm developers. Don't hold your breath. Do a thorough investigation on wind farm developers open and two-way communications with, the, with those who've been forced to live alongside wind turbines all over rural Ireland. You'll find it was non-existent. Yeah, wind turbines, they they... They're never really welcome. Anywhere you go and you see a wind turbine, you know that someone locally is unhappy about the fact that they're there. We're talking about putting these out to sea. 1850-715-996. We found another toker. We don't know whether it's toker or toher. (laughs) Tim says it's between Carrigaline and Riverstick. Is it toker or toher, though? That's what I want to know. 1850 715 996. Can we just talk? The opinion line on Corks 96 FM. With Dairy Made Premium Spread, 100% natural, and made in Cork using West Cork Cream. Access all areas on Corks 96 FM. Your guide to nightlife on the side. Hi, it's Michael here with an update on Corks Entertainment. Creating Together is an online learning program conceived and delivered by Sirius Arts Centre. It connects artists Carol Ann Conley, Bridget O'Dea and Karen Power with children and young people fostering critical thinking.
thinking around different forms of art. Sirius is looking for participants for creating together and you can find out more at SiriusArtsCentre.ie Access all areas. Passing the halfway point in its 2021 online concert series, Cork Orchestral Society welcomes a performance from Woodwind Quintet, Winds of Change. It takes place this Saturday, May 15th at the Curtis Auditorium and you can watch the concert stream from the website CorkOrchestralSociety.com Access all areas. Feel free to let us know at Access All Areas if you have a rescheduled show coming up or any live streaming events by emailing us at aaa at 96fm.ie Access all areas. Your guide to nightlife on the side. On Cork's 96FM. Jer was texting in with regard to, you know, are you posh? And someone was saying earlier on that if you if your pinky sticks up when you're drinking a cup of tea, then you're dead posh. And I was saying, well, if you're Mug is so small that you can't... Yeah. Ger points out, and God, Ger, you're right, I was watching it. Sean Murphy, the snooker player, in the world final a couple of weeks ago, she noticed every time he picked up his glass of water, um, his pinky was sticking up in the end. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I saw that. Mind you, I must say, the way they have the water now at the snooker, it's all water and it's it's all very... Although I think Karen Wilson was supping mugs of coffee at one point. But, but I remember the time when... Do you remember Bill Werbeneck, the big Canadian guy, who used to point a lager with every, uh, with every frame of snooker? I sometimes miss the old days. <laughs> On the subject of who should and who shouldn't be uh, in the ward with the expect, in expected mother... Uh, on the phone, I had a miscarriage back in December. My partner couldn't come in. But when I was in the ward, there were other women with their partners. When I was asked, I was told there were different circumstances. My mother had nine of us at home with the assistance of a nurse. It's a bad crisis we're in now, but it can't all be about me, myself and I. Catherine says, I can't, I can always remember my darling late mom telling me how when we were all born, they'd get a taxi to Cork where she'd be dropped off. The lucky dad went on to his aunt's house near the lock, to be spoilt, while she had us all without epidural or any pain relief. What women they were. She also told us she hand-milked the cows the evening before I was born, says Catherine. We all have to make sacrifices, says another message. It's ch- in childbirth. It's childbirth. Women have been doing it for years without the partners. Jessica says a generation ago, husbands weren't allowed in, but birth partners were. Mothers, dual as midwives. We're now being denied any birth partner. Women were never meant to birth alone. My home birth midwife uh, had to leave me at the door of COMH. Vanessa listing in this morning on partners not being allowed in. Here's a picture of my fiancé, Brian, sitting across the road on the wall, knowing what window I was at. This was for seven hours till I was brought down from my section. Then he had about an hour and a half with our son, his first baby. It's very hard on both partners. I was on my own then for four days. Bernadette says the babies are bonding with the wrong people in the first few hours. In the past, people were more reserved. It mightn't have mattered. It's different now. These children might not feel secure in later life. Bernadette, the only thing I'd say there is I don't remember being born and I don't think any of the children will, but I take your point. Sarah, I had a baby last Thursday night. was brought in Wednesday to be induced. The staff and midwives were brilliant. Christine, one time when dads were not in for the birth, the nurses took baby to the nursery and fed them too. So the mothers got sleep and rest. It was such a different time. I just text, this is Kevin. I'm 32. My wife had a baby eight weeks ago. I must say it was the worst experience of my life. 
I felt robbed of the experience of the pregnancy. Staff had no sympathy for the fathers. My partner's health wouldn't be great, so she was in hospital every week, and all I could do was sit at home. I'm now going to counselling. I felt I was treated like nothing at the CUH. 1850-715-996. That's an interesting take. Like many people, I tuned in last evening to Facebook Live to watch the revelation by Paul Trevod of what he's been billing as the plan. Uh, we all know that Paul really does want to get all of the restaurants and all of the pubs and all of the hotels open and operating on the same day. And last evening, he launched what he calls the plan. And after the launch, I caught up with him. Paul, like a lot of people, I tuned in last evening to your Facebook Live to see what the plan was going to be. You're writing a letter to TDs. It's it's not the big dam buster that people were expecting. Well, you see, PJ, it's very, very simple. That you are not... the. We, first of all, we must ask ourselves, what's the objective here? And the objective is, A, to unite all of hospitality and tourism under one branch, and B, is to also, what does success look like? And success looks like all of us opening up on the 2nd of June with the same guidelines as hotels, both indoors and outdoors. Because outdoor, as I've said for months, is not a narrative that should be followed at all in this country. It's like skiing in the Sahara Desert. It's just not going to happen. So the whole narrative was to get people on board. So you're not going to defeat a government by breaking the law. You're not going to win the support of the public by advocating that we go off and commit civil disobedience. So the point is, is that we need to make the government change their mind to realize that they are wrong and that we all open up on the 2nd of June. So it's not reneging back on saying that, oh, I'm chickening out of not opening up or I'm not going to make my stance. Me standing on the 2nd of June, opening my restaurant and being shut down within two seconds by the guards is going to do nothing for what we're trying to achieve. Absolutely nothing. Me shouting and screaming to say, let's cause civil disobedience is going to do absolutely nothing to get what we need to get, which is to everyone open up on the 2nd of June. So, you know, you're in the media long enough. There's a lot of people in the media long enough. Come out with a brash uh, headline that's going to get the attention, which we certainly did. We have trended for over two hours last night on Twitter at number one with the plan. And that is because the support has been absolutely incredible because people now realize that we've gone for old-fashioned people power. Send in the letter, canvas your TDs, tell them if you vote for this legislation to be renewed, that we will know it was you who put the final nail in the coffin of so many businesses. What you've done is you've written uh, a lengthy letter asking that on the 9th, or before the 9th of June, when the legislation is meant to be rolled over and renewed, that they not do that, that they vote against rolling over and renewing it, which would that then give you the right to open with the hotels on the 2nd? We don't know that. If, if, well, we do. If the legislation isn't renewed, then they don't have any special powers to keep us closed. So we all reopen. And uh, that's exactly what, what exactly what we're saying. And in the letter, which is downloadable, the links are on my uh, Twitter account and on my Facebook account for everybody. To, and I'm asking absolutely everybody listening to send this letter off that it states the reasons why I think that if they allow hotels to open up first, they will literally, and we're seeing it already, they will take all the staff from bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and the staff, that pool that is there to pick from is being absolutely decimated again, which is written out in the letter to say that foreign staff are gone home. They're still collecting the PUP 
and that's their right to, but they're also still working back home now. The average salary in some of these countries is between four to 600 euro a month. They are getting 350 euro a week. So you're going to ask yourself, well, why would they Well, are you saying there's people in other countries collecting a PUP and working back at their native land? Because if they are, that's a crime. Well, i obviously not going to give names or anything, but I know for a fact, yes, they are. Now, the advice with regard to the hotels would appear to be that it's a far more manageable crowd of people. If you're resident in a hotel, contact tracing is a hundred times easier. We know who is there. We know where they're from. We know everything about them. We get all their details in the log. Whereas people coming to and from a restaurant, you, can't, you don't have that much control over the contacts. So, so the answer to that is no, because they have publicly said in the Shannon and in Dolairn that there's absolutely no scientific proof that bars and restaurants pose a greater risk than inside in hotels. None. Last year, we all opened, we all traded, we all did everything safely, and incredibly, we all managed to do contact tracing if need be. We had everybody's names, contact numbers. We did everything by the guidelines that Falter Ireland told us to do. And there was very little, if no cases, attributed to the restaurant trade. And now they're telling us, that it can't be done. Now they're adding insults by saying, well, hotels since, and by the way, I want to make this very clear. I am delighted that hotels can open up on the 2nd of June. I'm over the moon for them. I'm just asking for the exact same thing. Last year, we adhered to all government guidelines. We did everything that we were told to do, and we did it very safe. As you well know, Killarney was packed, as was the likes of Westport, Donegal, all this kind of, we had an an amazing eight weeks, 10 weeks of, of business with little to no cases attributed to the hospitality sector. And now they're telling us that we can't do it. But at Christmas time, Paul, the opposite was the case. We had a massive surge. Yeah. So it's very important that we address that. As good as chefs are, none of us know the secret recipe to the UK variant that came into this country. So the two weeks and the data is now there to support that it is it was not attributed to bars and restaurants opening up. 99% of the cases since then are all the UK variant, which was not in this country. So I'm going to turn around and throw it back at the government's face, even though there's been presenters on, on the news who've turned around and said, it's all the bars fault for the surge. In case they haven't realised, Most bars have not been open for the last 14 months. So even though I'm not a bar, I can tell you for a fact, it's not the publican's fault of this country for the spread of COVID. Fact. And they can say whatever they want to say on the 6-1 News or these current affairs programs. It is not their fault. Where did the UK variant come from? Because we were so slow to close ports or have any control over people coming in and out of the country. So, PJ, as much as I love you, I cannot turn around and accept that it's bars and restaurants fault for the spread of the virus at Christmas time. So let's look at what you're hoping that people will do now, Paul. You want them to download the letter, sign it and send it to all of their local TDs. They will receive that. And then you're hoping that they'll go into the Doyle and and vote in your favour and vote against renewing the legislation. I'd have to put it to you, mate, that they won't because the government has a whip anyway. So the numbers aren't there for you. They will be there if they get the amount of letters that I'm asking people to do. This plan will only work if the Irish people stand up and do it. PJ, for you, your wife, your kids, aunts, uncles, anybody that you know to download and even do it for them. So you walk into Trevo's restaurant. I have all the letters lined up. I've done all addressed for you. I've got the envelope stamped and everything. So all you have to do is sign it and show your support. 
if every single bar, restaurant, coffee shop, anything to do with hospitality. And here's what's crucial. Hospitality is one of the most important pillars of society in this country. You crush it, we bring down a massive economic problem coming down the road. So the supplier, the producer, the delivery guy, the farmer, everybody is connected in some way to hospitality. The painter, the decorator, the media, PJ, as you know, advertising revenue is absolutely on its knees in radio stations and TV stations and newspapers. So you guys are going to feel the pressure too. Another four weeks is what you're being asked until we get more vaccines out there and the numbers coming down appropriately. When I spoke to you earlier in the year, you said that if you weren't allowed open by the 4th of July, you're going to open anyway. Why not just wait until July, Paul? Great question. And very simply, the government have changed uh, the playing field. They've moved the parameters by allowing hotels. What the government have done, whether they planned it or not, they have divided hospitality in order to weaken us. So hotels, and I fully understand, they're going to say, we don't really want to support the plan because, well, we're open in June. Those four weeks of them being open in June has what's stated all the way throughout the letter is that we lose all our staff, that it's an extra four weeks. We have three months in rural Ireland to get us through the winter and to get us through to the next season. If we open up in July, and don't forget, so important, they still haven't given us an opening day for indoor dining. So you say July, PJ, but it could be the 1st of July or it could be the end of July because they don't have the decency because we are treated very, very well, simply, can, simply can they? They as non-essential give, citizens. They can't give an absolute date. Of course they can. Didn't we learn the folly of dates before, Paul? We go with data, not dates. Yeah, but if you turn around and say it's opened up on the 1st of July, lads, but if we have a major surge... Well, then it, obviously it's, it's not going to be the 1st of July. At least we have something to work towards. They haven't even said the parameters that if a number of X amount are vaccinated, if there's, I mean, Leo told us that if there was 50 or less in ICU, we'd be open. He told us that months ago. There's been less than 50 in ICU for the last three, four weeks. And still we have no idea. And you can't treat people like this, PJ. You can't treat livelihoods like this. Put it back into your job, into a politician's job or anybody's job. Imagine not knowing when you can go back to work. It's, it's, it's insane. Paul, I leave it at that. You're passionate as always. We'll see how it goes, what response you get to the letter. Thank you. Thanks very much, PJ. That's Paul Tribault. What do you think of the plan? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With dairy-made premium spread, 100% natural and made in Cork using West Cork cream. The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850 715 996. Text or WhatsApp 083 396 it's sunny and bright outside, but it's not quite shorts weather yet. Like, let's be fair now, lads. Uh, certainly not out in public anyway. And then you see Fergal Berry is editing the show this week. And I think if I came in and presented the show in shorts while Fergal is editing the show, he'd probably put me out the window. <laughs> he gives out to me every time I come in wearing shorts. I'm just interested in gauging how you feel about what Paul Tevo is saying. 
um, in that interview you heard before 11. I think a lot of people were expecting more from the plan last night, but as he said, opening up illegally gets you nowhere, just gets you in trouble. But he wants people to write to their TD and ask their TD not to vote for the legislation to be rolled over again in June. And if that were to happen, they'd have the right to reopen just like the hotels have from the second or third of June. I'd interested to know what you think. Um, what way is it going down? Uh, from Germany, uh, Audrey tweets, Restaurant and Hotel Association in Hamburg are suing the city for the way they've been let down about reopening. But Kevin says, oh, Crimea River, we're at the very last stage. It's about the movement of people and managing the movement of people. Give it a few more weeks. Grow up, he says. 1850-715-996. I want you to think about your values, okay? Your values. Uh, what are they? And are there any of your own personal values that are non-negotiable? And in the course of the pandemic, have your values, such as they are, changed in any way? And have you looked at non-negotiable values and maybe said, yeah, they are a bit negotiable, actually. And maybe ones that we were fluid on, you know, well, well, yeah. But have they become non-negotiable? And what effect have the pandemic had on our values? I get to that in just a wee second. But first of all, I must remind you that Trevor and the crew are back again this weekend for the excitement of the Premier League all powered by Talk Sport and on Saturday exclusive live coverage of Burnley versus Leeds that's at half 12 Southampton versus Fulham at 3 and Brighton against West Ham at 8 it's the Premier League live online with now stream live Premier League action with a now sports or sports extra membership and listen Saturday either on the Corks 96 FM app or 96fm.ie, live and exclusive radio commentary from the Premier League, all powered by TalkSport, free, free online with Cork's 96FM. 1850-715-996. Amy is in America, where it's very early in the morning, and says Paul is spot on. Becky, I see his concerns, but really he has to wait, like the rest of us aren't all vaccinated yet. Any more thoughts on that? Uh, you're welcome to send them in at 1850-715-996 or text to WhatsApp 083-396-9696. I want to talk about values and ask you a question. Has the pandemic caused you to examine your values? Like your values are the cornerstone of your life. You base everything you do, everything you teach your children, the way you work, the way you play, how you conduct yourself in public, the way you vote sometimes, or whether you don't vote, is all based on your values. Some of our values are core values. They're non-negotiable. They are absolutes, and you'll never be moved from them. Others are of less importance. You're, you're wavy on them. You may have a particular principle but you know what? Things change. But during the pandemic, have we taken a look at our values? Because the experts tell us that in the course of our lives, well, our values change and evolve. Some of them are a bit less important to us in our 30s than they were in our 20s. In our 40s, we look back at the values we had when we were teenagers and we think, Christ, what idiots were we? So they change. 
But experts are now telling us that during the pandemic, they have, we've taken a total different look at our values. Uh, Sarah Cooney from the Merry Me Centre is a life coach and joins me. Sarah, good morning. Good morning, PJ. How are you? Good. I think a lot of people have re-evaluated themselves uh, personally in the course of the pandemic. Exactly, yeah. Um, They have had a chance to slow down and to uh, spend time with themselves and to reassess their lives as a whole. And in doing that, they've kind of realised that, you know, I suppose the busy lives that people were leading before the pandemic you know, that was totally obliterated and they have had to face themselves as such. And what they valued before, like, you know, going out and socialising and all those things have changed dramatically. And Mm. with that comes a lot of um, a need to look into that and say, okay, well, that used to make me happy. What's going to make me happy now? And, you know, I used to really value that but I have no choice around it. I can't do that anymore. So what am I going to value now? So it has brought a lot more self-awareness. And I think initially we all were listening to the very negative impact and no doubt it has had a negative impact. But I'm delighted now to hear that people are really starting to reassess the impact and say, well, actually, you know, it gave me time to sit down and think about what do I really value in my life and, and who do I value and what do I want to do going forward? You know, how mm. am I going to make this benefit me going forward? Yeah. Like, do you know, we've had lots of time to spend on our own or just with those closest to us in our families and maybe look at something that was really, really important 14 months ago. God, it's not that important anymore now, is it? No. No, this is it. And the other side of it as well is um, in all the coaching that I do, values is is very important, um, either directly or indirectly. I always kind of centre, you know, I try to, I I question people around their values. And what I have noticed is one of the most universal, probably most valued thing among all human beings is freedom. So, for example, PJ, right, if I said to you, I can grant you three wishes, or if I said it to any of my clients, number one wish is nearly always, oh, I want to win the lotto, or financial freedom, or something along those lines, you know, that people have this idea that money is going to get them freedom. And the other side of it is, there's also identity freedom, so freedom to be who you are, um, freedom from things, so freedom from anxiety, freedom from stress, you know, freedom from pressures and limitations. The common ground in all that is freedom. And during the pandemic, our freedom was literally obliterated. It was limited. You know, we we could only go five kilometres to exercise. We couldn't mm. go out. We couldn't do all the things that we love. So that, you know, if anybody's looking to look into their values, freedom is the first thing I would look at. And I would say to them, you know, how would you rate your freedom? Would you give it a five? Would you give it a six out of ten? And, you know, ten being the best and, and zero being the least freedom. Mm. I suppose I could come back and ask the question, Sarah, define freedom, because freedom for one person, like freedom in your 20s and freedom in your 40s are vastly different things. Absolutely, yeah, they are. And and that's it. It's the quest, The main question to ask is, what does freedom mean to you? 
and what does it look like in your life and what would you like it to look like and that's all building your self-awareness which which starts creating small changes and it's small changes that lead to big changes mm. so um uh, there's huge benefits to to looking into your values it makes life easier and less challenging builds your self-awareness as i mentioned and mm. that leads to better mental and emotional health yeah. um your relationships can improve you can gain more confidence and you can gain more purpose and fulfillment in your life it gives you something to work on do you yeah. know, do you know and it, sorry go ahead. no you're Looking at the stuff that's non-negotiable, and this is just an observation, um, because the circle in which we all live and work is much smaller now during the yeah. pandemic. We're all surrounded by people, whether it be the friend, the neighbour, a parent, a partner, a loved one. We know that certain things in their lives are non-negotiable. Uh-huh. We know that certain things in our own lives are non-negotiable. Yeah. Have we looked or been caused to look in the past 14 months at some of those things and say actually maybe I should give a little definitely yeah um say for example when you're spending a lot of time together and you know tensions can rise when you're not used to spending all this time with your family and and the people that you live with uh tensions definitely rise you know like you kind of get to know people a lot more intimately and communication can be a big one in relationships so i think people have found ways to communicate better because they have to they literally have to to keep things running smoothly so before you know you mightn't have known how to communicate but when you actually say right what's missing here what do we need and you say to yourself communication that's instantly building the self-awareness and then you're finding your solution so the solution is how can i communicate better and you work together to do that and you know that's your your kind of solution to your problem yeah and some people might think you might you might have a a way well well i've said it i've said it and there's not i'm not for turning sometimes you need to be for turning yeah absolutely and you have to be you have to be flexible on your values a lot of the time sometimes you just have no choice but the main thing is to be aware of them, and that's what's really going to help you. If you're aware, even just of your core values, they might be, you know, communication, honesty, integrity. Even knowing that, you know, if there's one area in your life where you're not satisfied, you can be guaranteed there's a value that you're probably not honouring. Mm. And if you look into it and say, okay, I'm not happy in my career, say, what is it about the career that I don't, that I'm not happy with? Once you get to the bottom of it, you will see there is a value that isn't being honoured. So that's why it's so beneficial to be aware of them. You know, our children learn their values from us. We're the first teachers of our children and the values that they learn from us, they will take into their own adult lives. You work a lot with children. Uh The effect of the pandemic on them and on our interaction with them in terms of values. I suppose we won't know that for a while. No, I don't think so. Now, I am hearing, to be honest with you, that a lot of people are still, like, they're struggling going back into society, we'll say. They're not sure, you know, how to interact because there's so much fear around literally socially interacting. You can't shake hands anymore. You can't hug people anymore. You can't be up close with people anymore. And, like, look at my own experience as well. Some people are like, yeah, you know, they don't mind being near people but other people are very afraid and other people are very 
and children see that and they pick up on that so they ha- they do have that fear it's all about reassuring them it's all about you know saying you're doing the right thing and you you know you're doing the best you can and communication is a big one with children like they're smart they know what's going on they do pick up on things they mm. might be they mightn't be fully conscious of you know the 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 truth of the situation or, or the seriousness of a situation but once you communicate with them in a in a child friendly way they'll be fine you know they 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 adapt as i yeah. said before to you you know they're very adaptable if there's one thing i've learned in the last 12, 14 months, it is, for God's sake, don't take myself so seriously. And that's a change for me because I could be accused of taking myself too seriously. I don't anymore. That's something I think a lot of people have have begun to feel that way. Definitely. And a tip on, on not taking life so seriously would be look, this sounds a bit selfish, but it's not selfish. It's self care, it's self love. Bring it back to the present moment, where you are right now, and the safety of the moment that you're in. So, look, I'm sitting in a room here in an office at home. I'm safe, and you're safe where you are in your work environment. 99% of the time, we're safe, unless we're obviously in an unsafe situation. And all of the perceived threats, like the pandemic, like, you know, different illnesses out there, or, you know, any kind of perceived threat that, that might be impacting on your mental health at the moment, it's outside this room. So you're safe right now. If you keep bringing your focus back to that safety, it's going to bring a bit, you know, your body is going to ease up. It's not going to be as stressed. And that is a great tip for easing any anxiety. Just Mm. know that all the dangers are outside of your safe environment right now. And if you come upon them, you can deal with them then in the moment. Okay. All right, Sarah, thank you very much. Sarah Cooney of the Marry Me Centre, Life Coach for Adults and Children. Values have definitely changed. I think, thanks, Sarah. I think the way we, the way we are about ourselves in May of 2021 is an awful lot different to the way we were about ourselves in May of 2020. I know I am. I've changed. I couldn't write it down or verbalize it too much, but I know I've changed. I know that I've changed. I'd like to think that in some ways I've changed for the better. I also know that in some ways I've probably changed for the worse. But have you? taken a look at your values in the last while and thought, well, do you know what I really thought was so important? It actually isn't. Do you know? This thing that I had to do, it had to be done, it had to be done this way and no other way, be it work, be it home, be it whatever, that it's really not that important anymore. Have you been come to a conclusion in the course of the pandemic that, do you know, Maybe, maybe certain things just actually don't matter at all. They actually really, really don't. I'd love to know what you think. 1850-715-996. We mentioned um, money in the course of the conversation with Sarah. And I wanted to get to this. The list is out of the highest paid athletes in the world. And your man, Mr. McGregor, is top of the list. This is the Forbes 2021 richest athletes, highest paid athletes on the planet list. And up there at the very top, the tippy tippy top, is Conor McGregor. On $180 million or just under 
150 million euro between last May and this May. Now, he fought once. I can't remember, did he win or lose? But he fought once in that time. 130 million euro of that, 20, of that 150 million was made outside the ring through other businesses and other endorsements. 180 million Conor McGregor in one year. Compare that to Cristiano Ronaldo. He's number three. $120 million. LeBron James, the basketballer. $96.5 million. Tennis player, Roger Federer. $90 million. So, Roger Federer, in the last 12 months, one of the greatest players ever to lift a tennis racket. He made exactly half of what Conor McGregor made in the last 12 months. And I think he played an awful lot more tennis than Conor McGregor swung a fist in a ring. And Lewis Hamilton, the Formula One racer, and they did, they, they had a full season of Formula One behind closed doors. Lewis Hamilton made $82 million in the last 12 months. Conor McGregor, 180 million, and he had one fight. I don't even know, did he, did he win that fight? Wow. From an unemployed plumber uh, with barely the clothes on his back to the highest paid athlete in the world in 2020-21. Love him or hate him, you, you can't ignore him. 1850715996. Connor is in y'all and says my values have definitely changed. I used to have to contact, we have to contact people 24 7. Now I message them less. We have an occasional video call and the less contact has more substance. That's interesting. Can we just talk? The opinion line on Corks 96 FM. With Dairy Made Premium Spread, 100% natural and made in Cork using West Cork Cream. The drama is sensational. That's 80. Oh, he's dead. It's an equaliser. It's stoppage time. And it's all right here. Grealish for seven. Join me, Trevor Welch, on 96fm.ie for the Premier League Live online, powered by TalkSport. Go, go. This Saturday, it's Burnley versus Leeds United at 12.30. Southampton versus Fulham at 3. And Brighton versus West Ham United at 8. Go, go. The Premier League Live online. With now, stream live Premier League action with a now sports or sports extra membership. Listen every Saturday on the Cork's 96FM app or see 96FM.ie. Cork's 96FM. Here's a text which I presume is in response to my conversation with Paul Trevo about the plan and how he wants people to write to their TDs to demand that the restaurants and bars all be allowed to reopen with the pubs on the 7th of, or the 2nd rather, of June. Why don't they just open the pubs to people who are vaccinated? That'll put the pressure on the government from the people to speed things up and vaccinate everyone. Now, that's something that you could do because anyone who's had a vaccine and big revelation coming up, I've had my first one. I didn't do anything like go public with it on Twitter or anything like that, but I have. I've had my first one. I'm waiting for my second one in a few weeks' time. Um, but why don't they open the... And I have a little card 
why don't they open the, the pubs to the people who are vaccinated and put the pressure on the government to speed things up and, and vaccinated? It's an idea. I'm not too sure it'll go down too well with those who haven't been vaccinated yet, but an idea nonetheless. 1850-715-996. Now, we've talked so much about disease and treatment of disease and pandemics and this, that and the other for 12 to 14 months. You might think your people are bored with it, but you know what's fascinating about medicine and science is we know what we do now. We know what we do in the 21st century to try to combat a global pandemic. What would we have done a hundred years ago? Or 50 years ago? Or 60 years ago? And there's a fabulous website has been set up called catchingstories.org and it's going to be left up there for maybe two years to bring history and health together. It's the Cork Folklore Project working in association with with UCC, well, UCC Folklore Department and UCC Department of Immunology working together on a history of how we dealt with disease, infectious disease, over the last decades and, and centuries. And I'll go first to Tina O'Carroll from the Folklore Department at UCC. Tina, good morning to you. And it would have been an awful lot different in the past. She's not there, is she? I'll go for, uh, is she one or two? Uh, go instead, ah, she's been on the program before, Dr. Elizabeth Brint, who's an immunologist at UCC. Liz, good morning to you. Hi, PJ. This is a fabulous project because one thing we've all been encouraged to do going through the pandemic is read about Spanish flu pandemic and read about maybe the, the, the TB problems in, in Ireland in the last century. This is a collection a specific collection of how we've developed over the years. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really exciting project that I'm involved in with Cleana uh, O'Carroll of the Cork Folklore Project. So if you get her back on the line, she'll be a great person to talk about the... I'm here now. She's there yeah. now. I got her. Oh, great. <laughs> um, but uh, basically, yeah, we, 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 we're collaborating to really kind of gather stories and memories of what people can remember about how diseases such as polio and TB affected them, affected their families, affected their communities in order to raise awareness of how vaccines have really changed our lives. You know, these were diseases that people lived with, that everybody grew up in fear of and knowing that these existed. And of course, I'm, as you know, you've talked to me a few times, I'm hugely enthusiastic about vaccines and vaccine programs. Mm. Uh, so these, this is really to bring, bring awareness to people of how, how vaccination has totally transformed the disease landscape for people. Yeah, and maybe how some things haven't changed as much because, yes, we've got vaccines, but we still, back in the time of the, the Spanish flu, they had social distancing, they had the washing of hands, they had the movement restrictions, they had the wearing of masks. So not everything has changed. No, absolutely. That's really interesting. So I had to do work for this project in areas where I am totally unfamiliar. So this has been a real learning curve for me. So they really only started to bring the Spanish flu under control when they started social distancing. Isn't that mad? They, they, they'd kind of forgotten from previous pandemics and epidemics before that, that you really had to do a bit of social distancing to bring mm. these things under control. And there's no better way to learn about our history than the most local of local materials, the most local of local sources. And that's where I'll bring Cleana in. Hold on there for me, Beth. Cleana from UCC Folklore Department. Hi, good morning to you. 
morning to you. The gather, I, I love this. I, I love gather, seeing old photographs, old medical equipment, old things. Like something that's mentioned uh, here is the, the branding iron. Now, I remember so many people of my mother's age and maybe older with this thing the size of a penny on their arm. It was an Absolutely. old vaccine scar. Now, I had my little jab in the last week or so, and I didn't even feel it going in, but this thing was a big flipping circle. Oh, we're absolutely delighted with how the project is coming together. And this is from material in our archives that already exists because we haven't been able to go out and do face-to-face interviewing yet. And Joe Scanlon talks about the branding iron. And this is what he got his uh, TB vaccination in Grattan Street Medical Centre in about 1962, I'd say. Mm. And he talks about the kids calling this the branding iron. It describes the long queuing going outside onto the street and him watching the faces of the kids coming out. They were in shock. And Joe lost two stone in sweat with fear on the way in there. And listening to his story, it's impossible not to suffer along with him. Oh, yeah. A scar. Like, my mother still has a scar. Absolutely. And there's all sorts of stuff um, that is coming into this project. We've got the stories from our interviews. um, But just recently, a contributor shared a memorial card with us um, of the two O'Shea brothers from College Road, Teddy and Charlie, who died within a fortnight of each other in in 1918 from the Spanish flu. Mm. And to look at their faces, um, we, they uh, generously allowed us to share this card on the website and to look at their faces, the youth of them, it's, it's very moving. And of course, like you say, College Road, many of us pass up and down there every day. Mm. And I look with different eyes now at that house that lost those two boys. Whereabouts the is the house, Cleaner? Um, well, I won't. I'm, I'm not going to give out the number, actually. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, um, in the general yeah. vicinity, would it be close to, say, the Hayfield Manor end or the the Highfield Road end? Um, I think it's more the Hayfield Manor end. Oh, yeah. I gotcha. I gotcha. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's probably it's, it might be used as a college building now. Uh, the, uh, absolutely. Now, yeah. there's another example, and one that really gets me actually is in a very early interview. Um, of ours, it was in the we the Cork Folklore Project. We started interviewing people in Cork about uh, the everyday and the extraordinary of life in Cork in 1996. So we're in our 25th year now, and we'll have our 25th celebrations soon uh, throughout the summer. But um, in a very early interview in the late 90s, Sister Marie Collins, she was born around 1920, and she talks about a memory that never left her. And she was saying, isn't it strange how some memories you wouldn't remember what went before or what came after? And she was remembering in low babies, that would be junior infants now, a little girl called Kitty O'Brien. And she describes Kitty with straight hair and a fringe and a little bow on top of her head. Well, both Sister Marie and Kitty, well, she wasn't Sister, she was Marie back then, and Kitty were out sick with the measles at the same time. And Marie was the only one to return to school. Yeah. Because poor Kitty O'Brien died with it. Yeah. 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 It's, it's like, though we've, we, I don't think we should ever forget, and bring Beth back in here, I don't think we should ever forget how lucky we are in 2021 that we are dealing with this crisis of the last 14 months with the huge advances in science. Imagine if something like this was visited upon us 50 years ago, even. Or even 10 years ago, PJ. Like, from my perspective, 
you you couldn't imagine being where we are now with COVID-19 and the vaccines that we have available to us even 10 years ago. But just just going back to Kiana's stories, um, this was a project that we came up with pre-COVID. Can you imagine a time pre-COVID? And I was concerned from my perspective as an immunologist with the decrease in vaccination rates going on amongst parents and getting their children vaccinated against things like measles. And what we were hoping was that by gathering these stories and memories of how severe these diseases were, you could really raise awareness of the impact that they had to try and counter that reluctance and hesitancy amongst some parents to vaccinate their children. I think vaccines uh, against these diseases have almost been a victim of their own success, you know. We don't remember how bad it was and how they affected communities. Yeah. When the website is complete and you'll be putting stuff into it for maybe a couple of years will it be left as a permanent archive will there be if you have artifacts will there be an exhibition of any sort is that coming well pj yeah to to, to you yeah perfect yeah it's it's a work in progress actually we're delighted to be on the program because we're we're putting a shout out uh we're looking for people to come to the website and register an expression of interest uh, do you have a story? Do you have a memory of people in your family or community or even, you know, yourselves with experience of some of these diseases from the 20th century and also from the 21st century as well? We're looking now at expanding it to HPV, which, of course, is such a cause of cervical cancer yeah. and then COVID-19 as well. And mm. yes, once we've gathered those, uh, Kiana and I are hoping for funding on, on this uh, project. We think it's so important we'd absolutely love to do an exhibition yeah. and, uh, and and maybe, you know, promote it wider. Because I have to say, one of the places that I remember being uh, a number of years ago, myself and the missus were on a trip to London and I had never been to the Science Museum. So I went off in and I said to her, off you go and do a bit of shopping. And she was gone for many, many hours and I was still only on the third floor. absolutely and indeed I mean you know in the meantime of course this site is going to function as an exhibition we are finding that um, objects and images are coming our way more than they would with this topic more than they would in our ordinary work Brilliant. so um, a student of mine in third year in folklore interviewed her father about his experiences of tuberculosis in the family and out of that interview came all of these images of and um, the leather work that patients used to do in the sanatoria that members of his family had done and photographs of everyday life in a sanatorium and in a lot of them was the poet Sean O'Reardon who was a great buddy of this man's brother. So we're kind of finding that when people start talking, they start thinking about the, the objects and the images that are left. Mm. Now, we don't deal in physical objects, but we're photographing them, we're getting images. Great. And now, of course, it's wonderful with um, online exhibition sites that we can have the speech, the audio, Spoken the real word. word, the voices. Yeah. And anybody who's not fluent in Cork, of course, can read along in the text. And then we can have those images and the people can move from one to the other yeah. or dig deeper on each. So we're in it for the long haul. Yeah. 
when once we can start interviewing again, we'll be um, very interested to hear from people who have stories, who'd like to be interviewed, who'd like to maybe write a piece for us. Great. The, the, and on the, the website, catching, catchingstories.org, there's a tab there and you can register your interest as a contributor. Fabulous. Beth, the senatoriums are fascinating. They just came up in one of my own conversations with, with a friend recently. Um, you know, I was saying that uh, we, there was a discussion like this time last year, should we have a hospital in every given region eventually given over entirely to the treatment of people with COVID? And it was being talked about. And I said, well, we've done this before. We had sanatoriums. And someone said, what's a sanatorium? And I said, well, it's actually a place out in the country where they used to send the people with TB. And the guy stood there with his, his mouth open going, they did that? I said, they, they did. These are not new ideas. No, fascinating, isn't it? And as I said earlier, I learned a lot writing bits for the website. Um, so the, I always thought that there might have been some help in, in some actual truth behind the idea that people got better from TV if they were put in nice, airy, clean environments in the countryside. It wasn't at all, obviously. No, but it, <laughs> it kept them away from others and kept them from infecting others. Yeah. Exactly, they contained it. Um, fortunately, now, of course, back onto my favourite topic, PJ, we don't need to think about that because our COVID-19 vaccines are working so yes. well. Yes. Um, but yes, at the time, it was all this, re- we, you know, all this stuff that was new to us, hand washing, social distancing, keeping apart, uh, all these simple, simple techniques that, of course, were implemented during the polio pandemic, the polio epidemic. Yeah. That was really interesting. They shut all the um, swimming pools. They shut the dance halls during the polio epidemic in yeah. Cork in 1956. And all the same activities that we've now seen were um, were implemented 60 years ago. I remember as well, now, being a young fellow, I, I can't tell what age I was, but I was in school, the polio vaccine when it came out. We got it in a sugar lump. And I, I, I've, to this day, and maybe you, maybe you can answer it, Beth, to this day, I don't know why I got a sugar lump and not an injection. <laughs> the sugar lump was the booster. Uh, you got you got an injection for the first one. Probably you just can't remember it. Right. But the sugar lump was the booster several years later. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, that was, of course, a live vaccine. Yes. Um, so an attenuated live vaccine. So there's great stories actually about people catching polio. Well, thankfully, we don't have that with the COVID-19 vaccine, but occasional people used to catch polio from babies who were shedding the, vac- the, 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 shedding, shedding the virus from right. the vaccine. It's, it's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. And it's all going to go into catchingstories.org, a website on which I envisage spending many enjoyable hours, I think. Thank you, PJ. Well, thanks very much for having us, PJ. Cheers. That's Cleena O'Carroll from UCC Folklore and Dr. Elizabeth Brint, an immunologist at UCC. And that website, if you want to take a peek at it, it's fascinating already. And they have many, many months and years ahead in building it. Catchingstories.org. www.catchingstories.org. And you'd be amazed. The stuff that we said, what's that about? What's that about? Standing six feet from me. What's that about? Or washing your hands a hundred times. What's that about? We did this before. Or rather, our our forefathers, our ancestors did it. And one of the only things that stopped Spanish flu ravaging this country was 
social distancing. And one of the things that stopped polio ravaging this country was closing the swimming pools. We've, we've been here before and it's worked. 1850-715-996. Yeah, that smallpox vaccine and TB vaccines, they were a different kind of needle. Thankfully, Fergal on the executive research desk filling me in this big branding iron thing. If, if you know anybody, they don't do it now, but if you know anybody, this is the thing to do, with a big kind of a thing like a penny on their arm. It's like, a, it's like a little faded pink penny size on their arm. That was one of those vaccines. There was nearly a hundred needles uh, and in a pattern of rings. Wow. Wow. Can you imagine that? Like I had, I said I had my little, I had my first jab uh, in the last while and the, the nurse said there'll be a little pinch now as they used to always say, there'll be a little pinch now. And literally all I felt was her fingers pinching my skin. Did not feel the needle. Can you imagine? A hundred... Get in there. Ow. 1850-715-996. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With Dairymaid Premium Spread. 100% natural and made in Cork using West Cork Cream. Cork's 96FM. Dina, stay with me. with me there in about a minute and a bit. Okay. We've had a lot of response to our first item this morning, which was a continuation from yesterday of the restrictions at CUMH and the fact that even though the chief medical officer now says there's no public health argument to be made for restrictions like this, uh, it is still down to local management to make the decision. And as we speak, and it may have changed while we're on the air, but I don't think so, there's, the restrictions are still there. We've got this this email to opinion at 96fm.ie. Hi, I would like to share my experience of doing it alone without my partner in CUMH. Two weeks ago, I went through a horrific miscarriage. I had to have emergency surgery. A few days before this, I'd landed in the emergency room in CUMH, had a scan alone and was told my baby had died. I was beside myself. My partner was not allowed in. When I landed at A&E a few days later, things took a turn for the worst. I was told there'd be a long wait to see a doctor, and I could not I could wait in my car, as I didn't want to sit among other pregnant women in the waiting room. I knew I was having a miscarriage, and I was hemorrhaging. I was looked after by one fantastic midwife, and without her I couldn't have gone through it. I begged and begged for my partner to be allowed in, Staff kept saying no, and only because I made such a scene, they eventually did allow my partner in. He'd been waiting outside. Something has to change. My heart breaks for anyone who's to go through the same circumstances as I did and be all alone and without the support of a partner. COMH also needs a private area for anyone dealing with miscarriage and pregnancy loss, as it's inhumane for someone who's just lost their baby to be placed amongst bumps and newborns. Please don't mention my name, but we do have it. And that's something that we discussed on the programme, not today nor yesterday. The private area for anybody having to deal with a miscarriage uh, or any other such tragedy. I, I think one does exist, but they don't seem to use it. 
Anyway, we'll come back to it if we can. 1850-715-996. But if I want to chat today finally with Dina. Dina, good morning. Good morning, PJ. How are you? Good. Now, you, you got a bad fright on your bike, I think. Yes, it's... It, um I didn't get injured. I was just frightened and shocked and hurt. But um, I was literally minding my own business, cycling along the road from Inchidani to Clonakilty uh, on a Sunday uh, recently. And um, a car pulled out from behind and brushed so close to me there was hardly a half inch between me, their, their car, and my uh, my handlebars. And the teenagers, there were four, two or four teenagers in the car, and one of them leans out the window and screeches something obscene mm-hmm. into my ear and the rush of the car passing and everything. I just wobbled all over the place. I wobbled for, you know, what seemed like an age, but I couldn't control the bike and I ended up in the ditch. Mm. Now, a car coming behind uh, helped me out and they got, they told me, the number of the car, but it transpired the number was incorrect. But that's mm. neither here nor there. Where did it happen, Dina? On the Inchidani to Clonakilty Road. Which is a narrow old road. Well, it's, it's, you know, at the area that it happened, it's not that narrow, but there's a, quite a dip on yes. the edge of the road. So when, when, my, when my bicycle veered off, I was helpless. I was stuck in a rush, you know. Yeah, you get a bad fall there. Mm, it, it was just disconcerting. Um, I was very annoyed. But since, since this had happened to me, I've had phone calls from two other people, women, and the exact same thing happened to them, one out in Ballinus Garthy and one on the Ross Carberry Road. So this seems to be a trend that's building up. Yeah, have and you a sense dangerous. Have you a sense, Dina, that it wasn't an accident? Oh, it wasn't an accident at all, no. No, no. I mean, you're, the guy was leaning out the window from his waist up, and I'm aware that something similar happened some time ago in Dublin, the Sally Gap or something. That's and right, I, I heard about that on another programme, yeah. Yeah, and I think it's it's emulating that. And it's fair to say maybe we should not talk about it because it gives people ideas. But then at the same time, we need to warn people who are doing it that they need to stop because it could be dangerous. If I had wobbled into the path of an oncoming car, which I didn't, or if I had wobbled and fell in front of the car coming behind, which mm. I didn't. Yeah. Or if I, like, if I were an older person or a younger child... I could have had less control of my bike, you know? Yeah, yeah. There is a craze and there are videos going around and it's not today nor yesterday and it's not just the, the incident that came to prominence a couple of weeks ago through the Liveline programme. I can remember getting a video sent in to us here, Dina, and it's nearly five years ago now of it happening to someone yeah, I, up on the north side of the city. So it's been, it's, it's been going on for a while. It's been going ju- on for a while. I, I just think the teens need to mature a little. You know, I mean, a, a lot is said about teenage driving and all this, and that's probably quite unfair. But in these particular instances, the teens just need to show a bit of maturity if they're handling a car. Now, the driver wasn't shouting out the window, but the passenger was. But yeah. obviously, when teens get together in a the car, there's a bit of a giggle, you know. Yeah. Let's give this person a fright. And they just need to they just need to learn a bit of maturity, you know? Yeah, well, you can give them a fright, That's and that's not acceptable either, but you could end up killing somebody. Well, I you know. I mean, when I fell off the bike, I could have broken a limb or exactly. fallen, fallen under a car or something. Exactly. But it was busy. It was a busy Sunday afternoon, you know? Yes. And the guards are investigating. Uh, the guards uh, took the number, and they've been trying different combinations of the same number 
to see if they can come up with the said colour car and, you know, that kind of thing. But yeah. I, they haven't come back to me since. But I, they, they told me that they had a couple of other um, incidences to yeah. investigate as well. So obviously it's becoming a little bit of a trend. Well, well, yeah, and I think you've, you know, you've also, since you decided to speak about it, other people have approached you and said, yeah, actually that's something, that's something quite like that happened to me. Exactly. This is yeah. what's happening. So okay. it's, it's happening out there and it just needs to change. I mean, there's no need for it. No, there's not. There's it's, no need it's for utterly, it. We it's utterly, be allowed to share the road. You it's know? utterly stupid and extremely dangerous. Dina, thank you. Dina O'Donovan uh, from West Cork down on the Clonakilty Inch, uh, Inchidani Road, um, deliberately sort of nudged with a car to knock her off her bike. And since she went public about it, a few more incidents have emerged. It's it's a trend. There was one in Dublin a few weeks ago that got national prominence and we had an incident or a similar incident a couple of years ago reported to us that happened up on the north side of the city. What kind of a gobshite uh, drives up to a cyclist like that and attempts to, to put them off the road? Like what, what sort of a broken aegis do you need to be to even think that that's funny. On uh, the vaccines and TB and the history, uh, Jimmy and Cove says, PJ, I got TB in 1982, spent six months in Sarsfield's court, got the six-in-one vaccine. TB wasn't in- included. I got the sugar lumps. They were a booster for six-in-one. And Lisa uh, on WhatsApp, I've had bad experiences in our hospitals. The nurses are doing their best. They're in a situation where the simple things like antibacterial wipes for payment machines, for example, they can't do everything. It's not safe for anyone entering the hospitals. I think that point that, that Lisa is making is that the local decision will be made locally by the people who know best locally as to who can come in and who cannot come in to somewhere like the COMH. And to reiterate again, there's been no development with that The restrictions are still in place, even though the chief medical officer says there seems to be no public reason, public health reason for it anymore. But the decision is down to local management. They still seem to feel that the restrictions such as they are, are necessary. We'll follow it with interest. That's it for today. The programme edited by Fergal Barry, produced and researched by Maureen Tuig. We'll see you tomorrow, just after nine. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.